That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that drops a second surprise summer episode Whoa! of childhood friendship, outdoor adventures, train dodges, dig it, and the nostalgia you feel for a time you never lived through. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. You guys, we can't stop coming back to school this summer. We're just so excited you know we were ready to run out at that final bell and then all of a sudden we're just like those two kids that are always hanging out at school like when's it gonna come back right we're here and we are ready to be in your earbuds as you road trip as you have a wonderful time this summer let it not be alone let us party with you chris what do we have for them yeah, we're back with the second bonus summer episode, and like the last time, we're going to feature an episode in its entirety from Ding Dong Darkness Time, where I join Allison Dixon and another guest host, friend of hers, Kate Jenkins, and we take a fond look back at Stand By Me and the Stephen King novella that inspired it, The Body. As we mentioned last time, listeners may know Allison Dixon is friend of the show fellow classmate, and she's been a guest host on two of our episodes, one of which was a Stephen King topic when we talked about it. Well, she had dedicated a whole season, her season two, of Ding Dong Darkness Time to Mr. Stephen King, the master of horror and macabre himself. There was a little bit of a curveball episode, though, because we talked about his short story, The Body, which led, of course, to Stand By Me, not your typical... What you would think of Mm -mm. Stephen King fair. But again, he often got pigeonholed as a horror author, and uh, his range is certainly a lot more than that. And we'll talk a bit about that in that episode. But because we're going to stream that episode here, and actually I should just say it was two episodes on Allison's feed, just for simplicity, I'm going to jam them together. So it's going to be one long episode talking about uh, these stories, but There's probably nothing that drips of more nostalgia, in my opinion, than Stand By Me. Oh, man. Beaming with it. Just glowing with nostalgia. Yeah. And as summer is winding down, it's August right now, I think this movie is really going to vibe with those final days of summer we had as kids where you're pretending it's not going to be over, but you know it's going to happen. And especially those years where you had a transition, you're going not only to a new grade, but maybe you're going to junior high or high school, you know, it's it's a big, scary, uncertain place. Yeah. That's a relatable thing for all of us. And so timing-wise, this felt like a great time to showcase this episode. And also, of course, get Ben's treatment. Uh, <laughs> we need to know from our 80s high perspective. Brace yourselves. <laughs> he dropped a bombshell on us last episode, so I am like... I'm biting my nails right now. If you think Maximum Overdrive blew you away, (laughs) just strap in and get the tissues ready for tears, because I've got reactions. Oh, man. A similar announcement that we did to last time, Ben and I will not be swearing during our parts, because we do have a uh, a not explicit podcast. 
But there's a little bit of minor swearing and language uh, from the Ding Dong Darkness Time episode, hence the explicit tag for this particular episode. So if you have impressionable ears nearby, don't want to hear strong language yourself, just take that into account. Much also like last time, we'll drop a few little crumbs at the beginning before we go directly into the episode uninterrupted. But once that episode ends, don't stop because we're going to, what I say, Scooby-Doo, Blue Skidoo back here to Scooby 80s so High. Good. So we can talk a little bit of chemistry from Ben and then, of course, get into math where we uh, assess how this movie holds up today. So if you don't know, The Body is a novella by American writer Stephen King. It was published in 1982 in the collection Different Seasons and was later adapted into the film Stand By Me. Stand By Me is a 1986 American coming-of-age drama directed by Rob Reiner. The title is derived from the song of the same name by Ben E. King. Great name. Fantastic name. The film is set in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Oregon in 1959. It stars Will Wheaton. River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell as four boys who go on a hike to find a dead body of a missing boy. This movie also features Kiefer Sutherland, John Cusack, Richard Dreyfuss. This thing is packed with acting legends. Yeah, stacked. Oh my goodness. And I think that's all I have to really set this up. You know what? I have some contemporary culture, but I think we can save it till after we listen to the episode. Works for me. And you guys did an incredible overview of the movie. I mean, it was borderline gremlins for us, where it was like scene by scene, beat by beat, top to bottom movie. So it was a a pretty thorough review. It doesn't quite tack on to our structure here, but, you know, I think we did cover all the grounds. Again, you're going to see the history, where this stuff came from, the behind the scenes. You'll get all of our perspectives, how we came to the, the short story and the movie And then we talk about actually not too much of contemporary culture, and we can come back to that. Uh, And then, of course, you know, sort of our assessments of them. So the AV card is getting rolled in. We're about ready to press play and turn the lights off. Before we do, is there anything else that we need to cover? Let's see. We've got lights. We've got film. All we need is sound. All we need is movie sign. Movie <laughs> sign. <laughs> 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 um, no, I'm so ready. This is this is great. You guys dice this up well. Let's hear it. All right, let's go. Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. 
Hello, friends. It's Ding Dong Darkness time, and we're right around the halfway mark on our Stephen King season. I'm Allison Dixon, and speaking of seasons, this one's a little different, and I mean that literally, as today we're going to be talking about one of the stories from King's 1982 novella collection, Different Seasons. And that story is the coming-of-age tale, The Body, which some of you might also know by its movie title, Stand By Me. We will, of course, be exploring both over the course of this episode. And appropriately, I have with me two people that I would demand to have with me on a harrowing adventure to find a dead body in the woods. First, we have someone you all know and love, Chris, who is fresh on summer vacation from his super radical show, 80s High. And next, we have another one of my dearest friends. She and I met well over a decade ago through mutual friends and our shared love of writing. But the bond was forged through copious cosmopolitans in the hotel bar of the Pikes Peak Writers Conference in Colorado Springs in 2011. She's a brilliant legal mind and wordsmith, a true crime enthusiast, and of course, she's an avowed constant reader. And folks with a really gimlet eye might also notice there's a woman by the same name mentioned in the dedication for my book, Strings. This is that Kate. So say hello to Kate Jenkins. Yay. Hey guys. So great to be here with you, Allie. I can't believe we're here. Kate, I have not actually spoken to you this way, like voice-wise. God, has it been about that long? <laughs> it probably has been since the Cosmo night, yes. Yeah, the night of the Cosmopolitans, the Cosmo <laughs> night. That night, I'm just going to say right off the bat, you ever have a meeting with someone that just feels like it was plucked from the universe and just plopped right in front of you? Because that was the night that Kate and I discovered we both had a mutual acquaintance that was completely off the chart. So incredibly random. Like it was such an amazing thing to discover. It did feel like it was made to be. She was friends with someone that I considered my mentor in college uh, for psychology. And he's actually going to be on this show at some point. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And when we both made that discovery that you knew him and I knew him, I just about fell off my bar stool. Yeah. And the funny thing was, and I hope I'm not revealing too much um, of his background, but he and I worked in a restaurant together when we were in college in Boulder. And he was like the kitchen manager. Oh, my um, God. And I worked in the front of the house. And that's how I knew him. But then to find that you knew him like in from graduate from school in Washington. Yeah. That was, that was crazy. Yeah, you Colorado kids. I have a lot of connections in Colorado. Uh, it's a very special place to me. So it, it just means a lot that you're still with me and part of this big, crazy adventure. Now, Chris, you, fresh off, like I said, you're on summer vacation, man, and you were back with me and I'm thrilled. How are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm doing great. I have to say, as of this recording, it's still final exam time. I have to get that last episode oh. edited and out the door. This is a story, whether you know the novella or the movie, that's about nostalgia. You know, those transitions from school to summer and back and forth. And I'm definitely at that point where it's like, I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to finally click that last button, submit, and fully enjoy summer vacation, which will include me hanging out with you a bit more on the show. Yes. exciting. We have a, a bunch left in store for the season. In fact, Kate and Chris and I will be back next week 
for a, a talk on Shawshank Redemption. We were going mm. to try to see if we could do both in one episode initially. And Chris and I, having used our experience from, I don't know, the paintings and the architecture episodes in season every one. <laughs> okay, yes, every episode. <laughs> every single one. You know what the common thread is in all of these? It's my blabby ass mouth. So um, it's really it's really hard to stick a cork in that thing sometimes. I'm going to make this, when I make this, you have to stop talking. I'm going to make a little signal and you just have to <laughs> Stop in your tracks. How about yes, that? But I can <laughs> keep going. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Please let Kate talk. That's what that signal is going to be. Um, so we're talking the body. As Chris said, this is a great tale actually to begin the summer with in a lot of ways. That's a I really am glad you mentioned that because it really is. We talk about the story about these four 12-year-old kids that uh begin their summer by going on this uh long adventure to find sorry, a dead Allison, body. it is end of summer. I just want to make that clear. Oh, it is end of summer. Okay. It, yeah. Sorry. It's Labor Day weekend. Yeah. 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 But it's kind of, it's a summer tale though. Cause they're traveling, you know, they're camping, they're walking around. It's exactly. They haven't gone back yet. Actually, I feel like them going back to school is sort of part of that internal conflict. Right. Cause they have this feeling yeah, that yeah, it's all going to be different. Not to jump um, to the very end, but their goodbyes are like, Hey, see you in school. It's like the next time school. we'll yeah. see you. Yeah. That's Did you we'll ever be. have that feeling by the way, when it was summer Absolutely. break and you were with your Literally. friends? Oh my God. Like, I hope I see you. I hope we're still friends. Yeah, but especially at that age, um, because yeah. as you're about to, you know, that the summer days are over and what you, whatever you've been doing is going to end. And there are other people teachers, other friends, people you haven't seen over the summer. And if you're going to from like middle school to high school or, you know, even stepping it up from, yeah, yeah. Go on to that different phase. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything's very different. And, and after you share a bond with something like this, that they did. And you kind of know, like not during those transitions when it's elementary to middle or middle to high school, you, it's true that it doesn't always, you don't always stay friends with those people. My best friend in junior high, it was definitely, I mean, not that we weren't friends, but it was not the relationship, you know, of my high school life. Those were different people. Right. So those, right. those friendships do end as, as amazingly close as they are. Yeah. You can feel that in the story. Yeah. There's that line where it's like, they just became faces in the hallway that really mm-hmm. resonates with me because I can just think, through different parts of my life where people I was very close with moved away, you know, kind of lost touch. And it's, it's strange how they can just kind of fade away or, you know, a bond is just not what it used to be. You know, you could tell they shared this moment here, but you do get this sense that like not all these friendships would last anyway. And that's mm-hmm. certainly where we see them going. I, I had a, a quick interjection because I just thought about this. Are you guys familiar with the Aussie band, the Luxmiths? I don't think so. Broken up. They have this lyric that always sticks with me, and it's very reminiscent of this story, which is like a ten-year-old pretending summer isn't really ending. And it's a great little line. And in this movie and the book, capture that feeling so well that you know your time is precious and finite, and this is like a last hurrah. And it's not going to be the same. They're going to middle school now. They're not in elementary anymore. So they're right. they're kind of graduating. It's a whole new scary world. And I also think a part of this too, and, and the way it also encapsulates, I think, growing up in a working class kind of poor area that these kids live in is when you enter um, that stage of education, the 
it starts, that's when the kids are no longer really on a level playing field. You see the kids going into college prep courses or the shop courses, like they call them, like the sort of regular or, you know, courses made for kids that aren't as, that don't have that same promise, right? Or don't seem to have it. And that's when that division becomes really apparent. Um, and I felt a little bit of that too. Um, just, I don't know, like a lot of my friends that I had when I was younger, when we did move into middle and high school, and they would go into the honors programs. Well, that's a whole other thing that mm -hmm. that forces them into much harder study. And then, you know, the, the sort of, quote unquote, mainstream kids. Um, and then those kids kind of pair off, you know, so it, it is it is an interesting a uh, way to to show too how kids are sort of divided as they grow into various classes, not in the classroom sense, but class in a societal sense. Did we just start this story at the end? Is that we did. We did. <laughs> in the middle. But you know, this is what we do here, guys. Um, we've, we're setting the tone, I think, in a lot of ways, because I also want to, I'm glad you mentioned that lyric, because I also have a quote that I want to begin this with from the actual book that I absolutely fell in love with, because I feel that it captures perfectly not only what the story is, but I think a truth that we all understand on a base level that maybe we've never been able to articulate that this does. And I think that King does so well, especially in stories like this, for some reason, like he's just in touch. I actually just finished reading Hearts in Atlantis again in preparation for an, an episode I'm recording later this week. And it's very similar coming of age kind of story. Yeah. And very similar in this. And so this quote is thus, the most important things are the hardest to say. They are the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. Words shrink things that seemed limitless when they were in your head to no more than living size when they're brought out. But it's more than that, isn't it? The most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried, like landmarks to a treasure your enemies would love to steal away. And you may make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you in a funny way, not understanding what you've said at all, or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried while you were saying it. That's the worst, I think, when the secret stays locked within, not for want of a teller, but for want of an understanding ear. Ugh. That just, oh, that gets me like so hard. <laughs> so that quote is right at the beginning of the story. And yeah. the end of that paragraph, he's he's starting to talk about the character Chris and how Chris is as an adult just passed away. Um, and at the end of that, he says, um, I never had any friends like I did when I was 12. Mm -hmm. Jesus did anybody. That quote too always sticks with me. The two of them for me are kind of together because those people that you knew when you were 10, 11, 12 knew you, I still think in ways that that maybe people don't. You haven't started repressing things a lot yet. You're, you are your bare self just yep. out there, man. <laughs> and kind of your whole self. Like as you get older, you kind of, you have a work face, you have a work self, you have a, you know, relationship self, you have a whatever. Compartment. When you're, when mm -hmm. you're 12, you're just, everybody's together all day long, you know, and especially in the summer and everybody knows each other really well. And what King does so well with these characters is he gives them all their good points and all their bad points. And he doesn't hesitate to show those um, with all four of the main characters. And that's how it feels to be a friend, to have those friends when you're that age, you know, all the good and all the bad kind of. 
and and it's accepted. What I think too is interesting about it is it, it talks about the way words diminish the important things, but it also uses words to perfectly encapsulate that feeling, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I just feel like that is the brilliance of uh, storytelling and writing and when it's done so well. This narrator is a writer too. Yeah. So it's kind of like King and the narrator saying, as writers, I'm not even sure that words are are it. You know, there's something maybe a little deeper, um, which I find really interesting. And it also comes through that story with the deer, right? Where he has this little moment with nature and this idea of the purity of the world still, right? And this little interaction. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to tell anyone about it. But I almost wonder, to your points, like, in later life where you have a little bit of that separation, in order to share this with someone else, you do have to use the words, however inadequate they may be. Otherwise, it's just locked inside of you. And what's kind of the point if if we're not making those connections with other people, that you're not saying something that then resonates with you? And I think that's what this movie does, this book does. Like, you may not be a 12-year-old boy in 1959 Portland. I was going to say Oregon. It's Maine. The movie was shot in Oregon. Why did they make it so complicated? (laughs) (laughs) It's in these Portland areas. Uh, You may not have been that kid, but I think anyone, no matter when you grew up and where you grew up, you can, that resonates with you. This story has a touchstone somewhere, even if you weren't a, a young white kid at that time. Now, when I set my sights on doing a season focused on the works of Stephen King, I knew this story had to be part of it, especially because I think it is one of his most well-known stories. And for folks of our generation and older, especially, I'd say it's probably one the one mainstream non-horror Stephen King story that we all have the most nostalgic association with. Thanks in, mostly in part to the 1986 mm-hmm. Rob Reiner film, Stand By Me. But I'd love to know more about your first encounters with the story. I do this on all the episodes. I love knowing what brought you to the story and, and you know what makes it important to you. Uh, I'll start with Chris uh, on this because I know, well, you've seen the movie for sure, but I know you've read it at one point, yeah? Yeah, you know, I, I tried to read it, goodness, it's probably been over 15 years. I think I had it in the, probably in the book collection that it comes in. Now I can't, different seasons, of course, Dad. Uh, I think I had it in that collection and I had stalled out on reading it at some point. So only recently had I gotten all the way through it uh, in the audiobook version. But certainly I saw this movie. I, I can't pinpoint exactly when. All I can say is that it is a movie that had a lot of special meaning to me for a variety of reasons. And I think some of them are very similar to everyone else's experience, but just being able to identify, I think a lot with particularly the Gordy Lachance character, mm-hmm. uh, someone who is kind of thoughtful and creative and sensitive. Like I had that aspect, but truth be told, a young, roughly middle school age Chris also had a little bit of sexual confusion because I was attracted to that Will Wheaton character at that time, yeah. but didn't fully understand the shape of that. I didn't know what that meant. Right. I thought it was an identification, I think, with the character. I saw the similarities. But when I really stop and look at it, it's like, no, I had kind of an attraction to him physically that I just wasn't fully aware of. I know what's funny is when we were teenagers, Chris, mm-hmm. in, in high school, and I saw that movie, 
he reminded me of you too. I mean, that's actually really yeah. funny. You mentioned that. I thought you were going to say that when you watched me watch the movie and I was just like stunned, like I was, nothing <laughs> else existed, but will. <laughs> no, I just, I think that's really funny though. I, I he's always reminded me of you um, in a, in a big way. And I think I, kind of sort of very minimally looked like him around the same age. He Again, did. not like identical. Yeah. We were not ringers for each other, but a little bit of a similarity. You could but, have been brothers. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, for sure. Not Denny. Um, that would be tragic. But <laughs> we'll, we'll talk I about more Denny John later. John Cusack was my brother either. Well, okay. I mean, to be frank, I mean, now John Cusack's the one that I was like, well, I'm attracted to him. Um, well, for obvious reasons, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, now, Kate, what about you? What What is your touchstone? What is your jumping in point for this story? So my parents were big Stephen King readers, um, still are, although my dad last read a Stephen King book when, when he read Cujo. Mm. Since then, he's been mm. unable to read a Stephen King book, but they were always around my house. And then I read my first one in seventh grade, hit it under my math desk in Mr. Holt's seventh grade math class. And it was Christine. Nice. Um, and so then after I read that, I really went on just a reading binge. Um, I'm not sure exactly. I think it was pretty quickly that I read different seasons and my favorite story. The first time I read it was actually apt pupil. Oh, in that, good one. In that collection. Cause it scared the Jesus out of me. It was so deeply disturbing to me. And that's apparently what I wanted at age 13. Um, and then as time went on, the body became my favorite story. Mm-hmm. And I think it became my favorite story because I really, at that time, and for many years after, wanted to be a writer. And to me, it was a writer's story. Yes. Um, and it, I wanted to, I very much wanted to write something like that. I thought if I could write something like that story, that then that was the kind of writer that I wanted to be. Um, And so that's why it was so close to my heart. I think that's interesting now because there are very few females in it. Um, If, you know, and the only ones are basically uh, Gordy's mom, um, who's barely present. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the girlfriends of the, of Ace and his gang. Um, There's, there's really no women in the story. It's very much about boys, but I think identified with just the, it felt so real, the friendship stuff. Like I very much had friendships like that at that age. And that I think is what I really identified with. So my, my first attraction to it was that I wanted to write something like it as somebody who wanted to be a writer at that time. And, you know, interestingly enough, and I can identify with that as well, Kate, King makes it look very easy. And I think when these stories are told so well, it seems like, oh, it's just a story about normal folks doing kind of normal things. You you should be able to write that. It's actually so much harder to write something that isn't heavily plot-based, shock, scare, Not that plot driven stories aren't challenging in their own way, but it's really hard to write a story where you have four very individual characters and you give them each enough room to where you start to feel like you know all of them. By the time it's all said and done, you feel very attached to them in different ways. And this story for me, um, at the time, I, I came to the movie first, obviously, because the movie was released in 1986. But I didn't see the movie for a few more years. Obviously, I was um, I was probably about nine or ten when I saw it. So definitely in that 
demographic. And I fell immediately in thrall with it because these were people, like you said, they were like around my age. I also had my ragtag group of friends and they were all girls, but they were very much like these boys. We were a bunch of raunchy cussing, tromping around in the woods, building forts. We were doing stuff just as nasty as the boys would do. (laughs) My friend Dawn at that age, like I haven't talked to her probably in about 30 years, but um, you know, she would do horribly. She could hawk the biggest loogies, you know, and then uh, (laughs) Carrie, she was the shy. Well, one Carrie, there were two Carries. One of them was super shy and the other one was like the caretaker. And I was kind of like the weird loner kid that was just kind of hanging out and and looking for an identity. I didn't really know what or who I was or wanted to be, but I was also like physically like the Vern Tessio of the group. I was the big kid, Um, but I wasn't like the, the comic relief at the same time. I was, I was kind of more, I was a little too serious um, because I was very self-conscious. So definitely had a group like that. And that idea that we could like strike out and go walk on this 20 mile journey to find a dead body in the woods. Like, Oh my God. Could you imagine at this age? I wonder if kids that are 12 now who have their groups of friends, would be able to escape for an overnight. Yeah, we had that discussion on Chris's show when we talked about it yeah. and how it exemplified an era where kids did seem to have that sort of freedom. Even when we were kids, like, I don't know yeah. if your parents were this way, but my mom and was like, get get the hell out. Get out. You cannot be in the house. No, yep. <laughs> like, go outside and play. We'll see you. We'll see you at dinner time. Yeah. And, and not just go play in the backyard. Like, Go wherever you damn well please. Yeah. It's like the you don't have to go anywhere, but you can't stay here kind of a thing. It's like yeah. and yeah, we were all over the neighborhood riding bikes everywhere. I'm curious, did y'all play around train tracks? Cause I did a lot. I was enthralled by trains. Did y'all have that too? Yep. We had trains always nearby. Really? <laughs> yeah. We had we climbed the top of the elementary school roof and then we would run across the roof. That was our big, big, uh, like, place that we weren't supposed to go, but we did it. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah, we had, um, I mean, my mom would have killed me if she'd seen a lot. Because, I mean, she was, while she had us get out of the house, like, she wanted me to be within earshot because she could whistle really loud. So, if she wanted us home, like, she would step outside and she would just put her, like, put the fingers in the mouth and do the really loud whistle. I've never <laughs> been able to do that. And so, if I could hear her all the way across the neighborhood, I could hear mom's whistle. Yeah. So, um, if I if I wasn't home within 10, 15 minutes of that whistle, then, oh, I was in big trouble. So, that was, like, the one guideline. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I lived in a... I lived in a trailer park. It was very big, at least to my childhood self. Apparently, it's not that big, but it's it's big enough. It was huge as a, as a kid. So, so I could go pretty much everywhere within the boundaries of that park. And, you know, but there were woods all around it. And yeah. I was told specifically, don't go in the woods. My brother was allowed to go in the woods, though. And so I went in the woods because I'm just like, you know what? Screw you. If she ain't around, I'm going in the woods. <laughs> so if you're listening, mom, well, you know better. You know I, <laughs> you know how I was and still am. So I, um, I'm very much about that exploration and, and getting out there. And I do feel like my kids didn't really do that. And to be honest, I didn't actively encourage them hard to do that but when they got a little older you know definitely but they've never they didn't have that 
like we had it. Um, and so I don't know. They they couldn't have done that if there any. All, a lot of the adventures they had were online. Right. <laughs> so I mean, different kinds um, of adventures, right? Very much but, so. Yeah. Like um, my childhood best friend, her name was Jessie, and we had other friends, and it, we all lived on kind of one block. And so the area that we were allowed to roam was like probably a mile and a half square. And we could go anywhere in that area. And that included our elementary school and the junior high school and a little bit of the downtown area. And where I grew up when I was really little was Grand Junction in, in Colorado. And it's really hot there in the summer. Yeah. I can't imagine what it is now. And so we would often stay out as a group of kids until it was pretty late because it got dark and cooled off. So we'd play nighttime hide and seek and just, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, that I don't know that kids do now. So I don't know if you'd be able to escape for a trip to see a dead body now. I didn't get around to reading the book of different seasons until much later. It wasn't actually until I discovered that King wrote Stand by Me slash The Body. And that threw me, right? Because I knew about that movie long before I discovered King. And so when I discovered that that was a Stephen King story, I was like, whoa. So I, I had to go and buy the collection, but I was already racing through all the horror stories. And so I got around to reading The Body probably, you know, 14, 15. And of course, I think that's what makes this story unique too, because at the time King released different seasons in 1982, um, and for pretty much the entirety of that decade, and really still now, King was known almost exclusively as a horror writer. Yeah. And we talked a bit about in our Misery episode how he intended to release that story and other non-supernatural titles under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, but this collection, and I, there was no indication that he intended to do that with this, but he had these novellas written, and at the time... They were like, oh, we don't know what to do with these. So let's just like throw them in a collection and see what happens. Luckily, he was successful enough at that time that his publisher was willing to do that. But this collection is just different in that not only is it not supernatural, because Misery still qualifies as a horror story. Um, this, none of these quite define. Maybe Apt Pupil comes the closest because we're, de- we're dealing with Nazis and a kid who kind of becomes under the tutelage of a Nazi and it's scary, but it's not really horror story in the in the in the traditional sense. That was a Brad Renfro. RIP by the way. He died yeah. young and and he lived a rough life that poor kid and very yeah. talented, which is just He was so great and uh, what's the... the it was a Grisham film. It was yeah. Yeah, it was like it was a time to kill, a time to kill. I think it was. Or so you guys want to hear kind of a crazy story about the Apt People movie? Yeah, oh, we're talking about that. So it was the summer between my second year and third year of law school. At that point, I thought that I only wanted to do. I wanted to be in the film world. It was kind of like the '90s, the world of indie filmmaking, and I couldn't believe I was in law school and I wanted to immediately quit and go into film. So I had applied for an internship uh, as a law student um, with Universal Studios. And I come home one day and there's a message on my message machine saying, hey, do you want to maybe be involved as a law intern in the making of this movie? And it's going to be apt pupil. And you would be reviewing the contracts because there were contracts about, you know, there were children in the movie. There's some... Um, risque stuff in the movie and some, and so we needed to review the contracts so that parents could sign off 
on what the child actors were doing in the movie. And so I immediately called back and said, yes, absolutely. Yes. I want to do this. They never called me back again ever. Oh, but to this day, man. I'm like, did that really happen? Or was that just like a <laughs> dream state? You know, they consider you an unapt pupil. <laughs> it was definitely not apt enough for sure. That's my, that's as close as I got. Wow. That's amazing. It's funny how we find these little ways that, or that there are these little ways that you could be tied to something like so big, you know, incredible movie, by the way. So I would love to talk about that one. I've only read it once. I would like to read so it again. Scary. I read it late too. I think that was the last story in the book that I ever read. And I came to it many years down the road because I always skipped over. I always read The Body mm-hmm. and then I read Shawshank over and over again. Breathing Method. I think that's the other story in that. That's another one. Very good, but nothing's really been done with it. No. But the whole collection is beautiful. And a uh, quick side note, it's The Client. That's the, the client, movie. Thank you. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was Susan, Susan Sarandon, Sarandon. Tommy Lee yeah. Jones. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Good yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Back when the Grisham movies were actually kind of good. Um, that was a really good movie. That's <laughs> yeah. where I knew Brad from. He was he did such a great job on it. But yeah. he did. He he showed so much promise. And you know, it was like they kind of plucked him for the same reasons that his character in the book was or in the story was so good. It was just this rough kid. Mary Mary Louise Parker, she was the mom from yes. well known oh, recently yeah. from Weeds. Yeah. Yeah, weeds and uh, fried green tomatoes. And and she was in um, Angels in America. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Amazing. I I miss her. Like, uh, I I don't know what she's up to. But that fried green tomatoes is another movie where you can be nostalgic for an era you didn't live in. Mm -hmm. Like, that is (laughs) another. It's much like this movie. I was not alive in the 60s but there's something about the nostalgia of it that taps into it. It's almost timeless or maybe of a time range. And honestly, I think that it's easy for us. And I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because I've noticed that as well in a lot of King's stories, whenever he's dealing with stories from his era of childhood, maybe I think we didn't identify it as we do because our parents are from that era. And a lot of that seeped in to our childhood too. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the things that they experienced, we still, time changed a lot. Things changed a little slower back in the 20th century compared to now where whatever was hot is dead in six months. And where back then, uh, a lot of the music, a lot of the TV, a lot of the sayings, a lot of the clothes, a lot of that stuff uh, was still relatable in some way. Yeah. An era was an era, like an era lasted for an era. And you're, and you're right. Like the movie shows that like the clothing, the music that's in the movie, Mm. the way the boys do their hair, um, you know, all of those things. And I should mention too, when you mentioned all the contracts you had were possibly going to review for apt pupil, um, this movie tying back to the episode we did with the twilight zone, um, movie and the, the tragedy that happened on the set of that film, um, due to all the shortcuts made and all the illegal things that happen with children on the set, the movie stand by me, Rob Reiner talked a little bit about a lot of things they had to do because of what happened. Cause that all that was happening mm. in 1985 or so the twilight zone movie incident happened in, I think 82, but that was all playing out in, in the court system while this movie was mm. being made and the amount of things that they hoops, they had to jump through to make sure these kids were safe was incredible um and they had to do a lot of clever things and of course they weren't allowed to be on set 
you know, very long. They were all very young. So, um, so the way this movie was made was affected by the Twilight Zone movie incident in a big yeah, way. Good example. They shot that campfire scene indoors. You wouldn't know it. It's yeah. shot so well. You'd think it's outdoors. I always thought it was, but I was listening to the director's commentary actually today. Uh, someone did it fresh in mind and Rob's like, yeah, for basically what you're saying, he didn't attribute it to that, that accident, but it's basically like, the requirements are, you know, actors that age can't be working after a certain time frame. And Rob Reiner, you know, he he definitely was always a stickler uh, for a lot of things. And oh, and I read about too how they filmed the train scene when they're running across the trestle away from the train, yeah. and the train itself was way behind him. Way but they used back. this great lens to kind of compress the millimeter. picture, yeah, to make it look like the train was close. It's amazing what you can do with optics. It's terrifying when you watch the movie. It looks like it's feet behind them yeah that last last couple shots with them running and the train is so big in the in the view is it's really scary and apparently the boys were on this side of the trestle and the train hadn't even entered the trestle yet yeah that's how far away it was but it looked oh it's so well done looks great you know and it's interesting too like this story and this collection over the years i have found myself championing it in recommending it in defense of King and people's kind of shorthand perception of him, which frankly is the result of stellar marketing, to be honest. I mean, his publishers did an amazing job uh, building King's image uh, for him and making him the success that he is and the known quantity that he is and such that you hear the name Stephen King and immediately your brain in your body might have a reaction. You might yeah. get a little tingle down your spine. Like you automatically think horror, scary. Um, but that's not necessarily true. He writes things like this. He writes these beautiful, almost literary stories about real people and real things and, and in the real world. And, you know, so the people that are thinking horror, they're not thinking about four 12-year-old boys from this factory town who hear gossip from a group of neighborhood thugs that they're, you know, that they found a missing kid, right. the body of a missing kid by the train tracks and, you know, deep in the woods and decide to go find it to collect a reward. If they did think that that's a Stephen King story, they probably assumed they were going to encounter his ghost or something in the woods. And, and uh, but this story deals in ghosts. It's just of a very real kind, a very human kind. Um, and they haunt the kind of that haunt people who've been through some stuff. And so I just love that. I love being able to recommend this book, even just last night, uh, Chris, our mutual friend, Aaron, who's been on your show a couple times. Um, he, even he was saying like, well, I'm just not into horror. I, I don't know if I should listen to this season because I don't get into horror. And I'm like, that's not what King is all about. Um, check out the body check out Shawshank you like the movie Shawshank Redemption oh yeah yeah that's a good movie that's Stephen King did you guys ever hear the story about how when Stephen King and his wife moved down to Florida after his accident um he was shopping in some Florida grocery store and a woman saw him and said something like something to the effect that she didn't like you know those Stephen King kind of stories and didn't realize that he was Stephen King and she oh. said <laughs> you know what I like is like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I, I feel like uh, 
I hate to invoke myself in this because the people who know me and know some of the things that I've written, even the people that have read, like I always consider the other Mrs. Miller my more commercial accessible thing, but even that's a kind of a dark story. But people that know me that have read that and read Strings, they'll be like, oh, I know what you're like. I've read your stories. And I'm like, oh, come on. You know, they just make assumptions that that's all you do or that's all you're capable of. And it's like, in a way, I'm like, I, I get you, man. You know, that, that people might have those assumptions about him. But my God, his catalog is just... It's much broader than that. Much broader. Yeah. And that's what he always wanted it to be. He never wanted to just be a scary storyteller. He wanted to just tell stories. He often tells that story about how he had written Carrie and he actually threw it in the trash and his wife Tabitha found it. And I wonder sometimes like if that hadn't been his first work that was found, if he would have been kind of pigeonholed into the horror genre. And I think he probably always would have leaned that way because he obviously loves it. Um, But there's a lot, even in, in Misery, you guys talked about how there, there's that interlude of what Paul wrote that wasn't the Misery books. It was kind of, you know, the very... The Hemingway Fast Cars. Yeah. Fast yeah. Cars. And then in the body as well, there's an interlude of a story that Gordy wrote that's about a guy whose brother died and he's kind of trying to... With uh, Stud City. Stud City, was, yeah. yeah. Mm. Kind of about cars too and... Um, a guy freaking out his relationship with his dad, also very masculine, very sort of, you know, bare language. But I think there's, there is a real way in which King is saying, Hey, I can write other stuff too. He's saying that in so many ways, isn't he? I think if you go through so much of his work, he is quite literally screaming from the page. I can do so much more. I am not a one trick pony. Please see me. (laughs) And as a writer, that's really always such a message, like, see me. This is so much of it, the center of so many writers and what they write. Um, it's interesting. I think somebody with as much power as as King probably has in the publishing world still can't, or when he does do other things is kind of, oh, well, that's not what I want to see or read from, from King. He's done some fantasy stuff. Dark Tower verges on that. Eye of the Dragon. Um, mm-hmm. Eye of the Dragon. He has another one coming out this year that's Oh, Fairy fantasy. Tale. I think it is. Yep. Yeah. Black House. And what's the one that pairs with oh, Black Oh, The House? Talisman. The Talisman. Oh, yep. God. I love that yeah. story. Great oh, book. my God. Great so book. good. What's really interesting, too, is that I don't think we would get this work at all, this story, if it wasn't for, because this is all autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Like basically everything that happens in this movie happened to him and his friends down to the leech on his testicles. Like yes. that even happened, right? Like, which is obviously a very just body horror kind of uh, scene. So, I mean, there's a little scary part, obviously Gordy's older brother dies. They're going to go find a kid, um, Ray Brower who died. So there's definitely those aspects to it, but it's really autobiographical. He said the, he had all these stories he wanted to tell and the only thing he needed was the hook. And the hook was this idea of finding the dead body. He said, that's the one element that isn't true, but basically all the little stories he puts around it are that experience, but he manages to do it in a way where it doesn't sound autobiographical, but in a way right. it is. Cause it's the, it's Gordy as a adult telling the story of his childhood. So 
for all the reasons, it just kind of fits together so nicely, but you almost have to wonder kind of like what you're saying, Kate, if, you know, if it wasn't Tabitha pulling the the book out of the trash, is it a different direction? If he didn't think of this hook, would he have shelved it, the story and just never told it? But I love the fact that it is so much about King and that, like you said, horror is what he's known for, but it's like, this is actually his life. Like this is actually a part of his real story. And apparently he just loved the movie after he saw the first screening of it. He he, was like shaking after it was done. Right. Yeah. And he, he had to kind of, Rob Reiner says he had to kind of walk away and then come back and was just like really touched by it. And, and I think to your point earlier, Allison, he's Reiner's one of the few people who seems to uh, be able to translate King's work well. I almost kind of wish he had other opportunities too. I feel like this is a good time to really dig deep into these characters because I feel like when you talk about the autobiographical nature of this story, I feel like King knew these kids and some versions of these kids when he was growing up. And Gordy feels more like analogous to him in a lot of ways, who is the narrator of this tale. He's reminiscing about his childhood and he's obviously grappling with uh, this event that happened uh, when he was 12. He's become a successful author as an adult, but he is always thinking about the events surrounding the disappearance of Ray Brower, who was a local boy who was first missing, and then he was found hit by a train. Gordy's life seems normal enough on the surface, but he lives under this very thick cloud of grief because his Mm -hmm. parents and, well, he recently lost... Gordy's older brother, Denny, who died in a car accident while he was in the army. And it's very clear right off the bat that his parents always kind of favored Denny. Um, And it becomes even more apparent after his death because his parents just basically ignore him completely. The gut punch line is that summer I become the invisible boy. Yeah. Oh, they're talking about setting up this night where they can pretend to be at each other's houses and, he basically says, yeah, I figured I could do it. It wouldn't be a problem because I was invisible. My parents didn't really care where I was. And you get the sense that he's he's just about to go to junior high. He's just about to start becoming an adult. And he's doing this on his own. No brother to help him. No, no parents to help him. And so these friends are all the more important. And Chris especially is all the more important for that reason because he is otherwise alone as are the other boys in their right. own ways. Right. right. And it's interesting too. Gordy is that kid who really is more neglected than abused. And I think it definitely shows though, that the difference between the two, right? Because mm-hmm. the other kids, especially uh, Teddy and Chris, they are just straight up abused physically and emotionally. Um, and then there's Vern. He's the well-meaning, but kind of goofball member of the group. Kind of just, <laughs> he's comic relief. I mean, you know, everybody knew of Vern, I think, growing up. I mean, so many of the boys, especially in my fifth and sixth, sixth grade classes. I mean, I just knew a lot of Verns. Actually, high school knew a lot of Verns. A lot of Verns. Um, oh, he, yeah. He's digging for a jar of pennies. He's buried under his porch, right? <laughs> and when he hears his older brother and their friends who were the town hoods, right? They're the town hoodlums, the town gangsters. Um, if you were, they're all friends with Ace Merrill and, you know, all these bad guys that we come to know um, throughout the story. But they're 
on Vern's porch and they're talking about how they found the body of Ray Brower out by the train tracks and they don't know what to do about it. Um, but they'd also don't want to go to the cops because they found the body while they were joyriding in a stolen car. So they're not sure what to do. Well, Vern overhears all this, right? Because they already knew about the missing kid because it's been on the radio. It's been advertised around town. Ray Brower has been missing. And so Vern automatically thinks I'm running back to the clubhouse to tell the guys because maybe we get a reward. Maybe we get to be on the news. I got a new comb. That was a thing in the book and the movie, if I'm not <laughs> yeah. mistaken. Um, and, you know, I'm going to look great. Get our pictures in the paper, I think. Our pictures in the paper. Yeah. That's right. And so. That's still a joke with my sister and I. Like, <laughs> I brought the comb. I brought a comb. <laughs> hair. I brought it for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And <laughs> and great. so the, the, the aims of these kids is very pure, right? They have like a kind of a a naive, wholesome view of this situation where it's like, oh, there's a body out there. Well, my brothers don't want to go find it. Well, we can go find it. It's just a dead body. We're just going to go out and find it. You know, they're very much in that phase of like not, they only see it from an abstract point of view, right? Um, and really, that's where we see things grow on a emotional level as the story yeah. progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other members of the clubhouse, we have Teddy Duchamp or Duchamp. He's what I like to refer to as the wild card. Um, and anybody That's the exact watched, word I was thinking. Yes, anybody card. who's ever watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, he's the Charlie wild Day. Card. He's, he's, <laughs> he's the Charlie just, Day. Yeah, he's the crazy kid. Um, he's, you know, the army kid wannabe. His, he's always talking about how his dad stormed the beach at Normandy. Well, his dad did storm the beach at Normandy, but... He he's not had, the better for it. No, yeah. he is not. He's, he's not very sad. he's very much yeah. uh traumatized and not right. And they called him your dad was section eight, which is yeah, yeah obviously sent to the mental asylum and things like that, right? So everybody who knows about Teddy's dad who didn't do well coming back, but it, of course Teddy idolizes his dad despite the fact that his dad held his ear to a stove when he was oh. a kid and melted his ear oh, or deformed awful. it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, he's abused Teddy horribly, but Teddy still idolizes him. And that is Jesus. Which I think some people don't understand, but I don't think that's completely uncommon in no. abusive relationships at all. And I think it's one of those things that on the surface, you're like, well, why is he admiring this guy? But it's mm-hmm. way more complex than you would imagine. Absolutely. Especially if you've, ne- if you've never had to be in that situation. Thank you, Lucky Stars. I think there's always that situation of like, he would be the greatest person in the world, if not for this one thing. And so you look past that, you know, I don't think it's difficult to understand why Teddy admires him and loves him, but I do think it's a really good device between the characters because Chris has no such feelings about his father. Chris's dad is just a drunk and just, yeah, just a drunk, just a bad guy. Um, He's basically an old hood now, if you want to, you know, use his sons are now taking over the, the, we, we need to use the term that we need to use at least once the phrase that uh gordy uses later in the story cheap dime store cheap hood, dime store hood. <laughs> um but yeah you're right that that's a great way to show the the differentiation between yeah. chris and teddy um is yeah teddy's dad was a war hero but he's not in a good place anymore and he abuses yeah. people because of it and chris's dad is just a cheap dime store hood <laughs> Well, and it's one of the few things, the fact that Teddy's dad was in, was in World War II, that time binds the story. I mean, it does make you realize how close it is to 
you know, the mid forties and these mm. kids are 12. So it does kind of yeah. jive time wise. And it's one of those few time bound things. Um, and then like, if you're talking about the sons and fathers it, and you look at Gordy and his dad, his dad is completely, especially in the movie, it's very clear, like all of the flashbacks where he just is focused on John Cusack and playing football and doesn't have a lot of time for the kind of kid that Gordy is. Right. Um, so there's a, Chris is that person. Chris is that fatherish figure. Um, at least as they're traveling through the woods, they have, he and Gordy have a couple of conversations about Chris taking care of Gordy in a sort of fatherly way. I love yeah. too how you're sort of leading me into so many of the notes that I already had, Kate and Chris too. You both are doing this, and like I said tonight before recording, I'm like I'm leaning on you guys tonight because I've had a week and I don't feel as prepared as I normally do. And you guys are just you guys are doing so great because um, Chris Chambers he comes from again a very poor home in a very abusive home. Not to interlink those two, by the way, I don't want to do that, but just to show that he comes from a difficult place. Yeah, and he's has a very quiet and thoughtful way about him and he's also the closest with gordy and a sort of the de facto leader of the group because everyone senses that he's the smartest and has the most natural leadership and he's just that kind of kid everybody again knew a kid like that Absolutely. everybody knows a person like that that is just the natural group leader right and he's also the peacemaker right he's like we're not walking away from this interaction with any bad blood, you know, mm -hmm. skin it. That's their way to just, it's like with the train dodge, right? And Teddy's ticked off at him. He's yelling. He's like, we'll do it on the way back. Peace, man, skin it. Which is ultimately in the end of the story ends up being his demise, unfortunately. And also I think Chris, as tough as he is, he is very vulnerable. Um, and that toughness yeah. is of course the facade of all the pain that he's holding in. And, mm. you know, the fact that he finally lets that guard down and that he eventually lets Gordy in and Gordy helps him become better than he and rise above his circumstances to get to where he was. So, I mean, yes, jumping ahead, obviously anybody who's read this story or watched the movie knows that Chris, you know, yes, he dies much later in life, but he lived, um, God, another almost 30 years before mm -hmm that happened which you know and he had become successful in his own way at that point and you know we'll get back i'll touch more on that later when we talk about it but um it it shows that chris let people in and it's important that if you do have somebody who does put up the front of being the smart one of being the thoughtful one of being the leader that they need looking after too and then sometimes they need more looking after because a lot of times that is that is the facade that is up. And people like Chris, and I keep saying Chris, and I'm not talking about Chris, but people like Chris <laughs> Chambers, um, those are the guys that one day they they kill themselves. I mean, let's just be frank about it. These are the guys that, and, and women and people in general, that, oh, they seem strong. They seem okay. They got it together. And no, they often don't. That's interesting because like, throughout Chris is the only one who is able to do things like, you know, he brings a gun along with him for the, mm -hmm. for the camping trip and, and he's telling Gordy about it. And he's like, well, yeah, it's scary out in the woods at night. You know, he's the one who can kind of say those things and mm -hmm. still be 
tough and still be, you know, the leader and, but say those sort of emotional things. And then he and Gordy have that discussion about whether or not he stole the milk money, money. how the teacher, you know, he turned it in and the teacher took it and bought a skirt or whatever it was. Like one of the things that screams out to me in this, in the book and in the movie is there are no reliable adults, not one, none of the parents, none of the older brothers, not the junk yard guy, not the guy Mm. at the grocery store that they buy the, the food from. And none of these people are reliable. So they're finding ways, these 12 year old boys to rely on one another. That's kind of a hallmark of this type of genre, by the way, I have found in a lot of young adult and um, similar yeah. type stories. The adults are either just not there at all. They're not present or they're not it's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that feels authentic. I think when you're that age and you're, you feel very alone, you feel very isolated. You feel like yeah. nobody gets you. I mean, that's part of the anguish of having one foot in childhood and one foot in growing up adulthood you know completely that way in it as well yeah these kids there are no reliable adults in it either no it's even worse than that one really even (laughs) even if you had a reliable adult in your life you probably wouldn't trust it with some of your or trust them with some Mm -hmm. of your deep dark secrets and and whatnot don't trust it no, don't, don't trust, trust it. it. Do don't not trust the Pennywise. You always have to watch yeah. that particular pronoun when we talk about Stephen King, you know? Um, but yeah, so they eventually decide to oh, get sorry. I do want to say something really quickly about, because you're talking about these different characters and their qualities. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, Rob Reiner was very explicit. He's like, at this age, you have to cast kids who are already those people. Yes. Like you're not sophisticated enough to take on another persona. And so he kind of talks through how each of those actors was like a perfect fit. He's like, Corey Feldman was the only kid who came in who could show anger, Mm -hmm. who had that, who could, who had the pain and the turbulence to be able to telegraph that. Turbulence. God, that's such a great word for Teddy. That is Corey Feldman's own word. Corey Feldman said pain and turbulence. And I was like, this is a hundred percent. And, and I mean, he he knows and understands and embraces chaos. I mean, this kid, he was one of the two Corys, right? The, the yeah. Corys of the 80s um, child stars and, and you know, um, where Corey Haim was the, the pretty boy, you know, and he actually auditioned, I think, to be in it. And they, you know, went with, um, yeah. they went with uh, um, River Phoenix. Yes, he was going for the Chris Chambers part. Yeah. Um, but he, well, also, so was Sean Astin. Sean Astin was going to audition for the role of Chris Chambers. And as he was going in, River Phoenix is walking out and he sees the faces of the casting director, Rob Reiner, everybody in the room, and they are just like blown away. And a couple of them are like sniffling. And he knew he didn't have the part um, because River Phoenix just blew it out of the park mm. and yeah. apparent and then he saw the movie when it came out and he immediately said yes that went to the right person i always get kind of goosebumps when i talk about river phoenix in this movie too. by the way i i just you know i i kind of want to go watch it again just for him i just did in the last week and the that performance all of their performances um mm-hmm. remain so incredibly strong and there's it, that casting comment has got to be completely true because River Phoenix is the perfect, you know, he had enough trouble in his own life. He's, mm-hmm. he can carry that sort of leader 
role, that cool kid role, but still with a lot of trouble um, and some vulnerability. He, he was that. And then, I mean, you can't escape the thought of Chris passes away, although as an adult and we lost River Phoenix, you cannot not think about that. In the book, Gordy's the only one who makes it. When yeah. he's telling the story, all the other characters are dead. Uh, which did is, anybody else wow. get like because we all came? I'm assuming, yeah, we all saw the movie first before we ever read the story. Yes. Um, I read the book first. Did you really? Okay, so you knew. I didn't know. So I was assuming I would hear like Vern gets married and has a ton of kids and then um, Teddy moves away. A forklift operator. And it's like, no, uh, one dies in a car accident. Another one dies in a house fire. And it's like, what? They're all dead? What? (laughs) Except for Gordy. Like that threw me so hard. That's sucker punch. You're just like, oh, man. It feels like the correct ending for this, the book and the way it was written it and does. the way it was told that Gordy is the only one that lived. And I'm going to tie it back to that moment with Gordy seeing the deer because I feel like, and this has been, it, it's talked, that scene's talked about a lot when, um, and for a little refresher for folks, and we mentioned it before, but Gordy is waking up and, you know, the other guys are still sleeping and he finds a deer uh, on the train track, like very close by. And they just kind of have a moment where they stare at each other and, and he feels something. And, and then, um, the, and then the other kids wake up and the deer just runs away and he thinks about telling them and he decides not to, he's going to keep that for himself. I feel like too, that's a bit of foreshadowing where it's like, he's been shown a bit of grace that the other's have not and will not be shown is like you have been given this special little moment that you can carry with you and the others didn't get that and it sort of also ties back to when they're flipping coins flipping a coins to see who has to go get the groceries the goocher exactly the goocher is another foreshadow and so that's the story king was telling and is that gordy is somehow going to be the one to get out of all this and the other kids are kind of doomed you know what's really funny about that deer scene in the movie? Yeah. Reiner said that in order to get the deer to react, they're like blowing air horns. People are like clapping and yelling and to do all that stuff. And it's such a serene, peaceful scene. <laughs> but behind the scenes, everyone's just screaming and blasting horns to get the deer to do the right thing. It's always so funny. <laughs> the deer just wanted to hang out. They're like, man, you got anything yeah. in craft services? I could like go for a donut right now. Right. Yeah. Um. It's just funny. It's like, oh, yeah. Because I mean, obviously, it's presented in such a way that you think it's just, oh, this peaceful moment. It works out. The magic of making movies. There is that thing, too, is when you get older, going back to, I see saw a little bit of this in high school. Went to high school, small town America. It's a town that's very insular in its own ways. And so who gets out and who doesn't? It That's always seems to be a question, who gets out. And whenever... I look back at the people I went to high school with, you can see the ones that got out and chose not to get out and just stayed and they became teachers, they became uh, other community forklift operators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and some of us got out and left and the others that wanted to get out and just couldn't, they're just stuck. Yeah. Um, and that is a dynamic that seems to be at work here where Gordy got out where so many did not. And if you study Stephen King's, this is a Castle Rock story. 
if you've read Stephen King's work, these characters, a lot of them are mentioned and recur. Like Ace Merrill is is uh, a recurring character yes. in the Castle Rock realm. Even Teddy Duchamp apparently gets mentioned in Carrie. Um, hmm. He worked at a gas station that apparently got destroyed by Carrie. I have to go reread Carrie. Just I'm to- going to have to check Carrie out again. Yeah. Well, like we were talking about Cujo at one point. Cujo... There's a, I can't remember what book it's in, but they mentioned, oh, when that dog got rabies in the town over. Yeah. You know, went after. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. it is all, it is definitely a universe. I think it was Pet Cemetery where that got mentioned. Might have been. There yeah. might have been. There was a few yeah. others, but yeah. And also Needful Things is, is the, is the ultimate, um, Castle Rock epic, and you yeah. do see Ace Merrill is in that one. If you want more Ace Merrill, please read Needful <laughs> Things. <laughs> if you want more cheap dime store hood action. Yeah. Oh, man. Because he becomes a very sad uh, dime store hood in his middle age. Well, it's completely foreshadowed by, and the, at least in the book, they talk about his dad just hangs out with the Chambers' dad. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, um, they all know each other. They all, they're it's all just generational, mm. you know, same stuff. You were talking about like the kids. I mean, that's bad odds, man. Like 75% don't make it 25% do, but you were talking about how uh, some of the kids being doomed Mm -hmm. in the story. There's a whole lot of discussion about a dream that Chris has of Mm -hmm. Teddy falling out of the tree and not being able to catch him before he falls and just getting a few bits of his hair. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Then there's a, I think there's another section where they're talking about, I think it's Gordy's dream feels like the other boys are sinking down like underwater and he's not able to to save them. Yeah. Um, Well, because too, well, if we think about it though, Chris did get out because he, he just didn't live into old age he did eventually get out so really we're at a 50 50 but at the same time it's still an ugly demise why do Um, we think that chris had to be punished that way why do we think we had to lose chris you know i feel like it is one of those things where it's like the the gucci eventually comes for everybody kind of situation But also, I think it just speaks in many ways to the very randomness of violent tragedy. If we look at the world we're living in today and and say, you know, stores and schools and everything getting shot up every other day around yeah. here. I mean, we're all looking at a possible demise like like that being, you know, up and coming. In Chris's case, I think he was a lawyer. He became yeah. he went into law. Yeah. You can escape this horrible life in this horrible place and finally make it only to be gunned down at a donut shop or a coffee shop. Yeah. Or stabbed in the throat. Stabbed in the throat. Yeah. Um, You know, in some random senseless violent act. Um, And that to me is, and it could have been Gordy just as easily. And so that just shows like, I feel where the deaths of Teddy and Vern feel almost like a result of their circumstances and their dealings at the time they both kind of got in with bad crowds and mm-hmm. um and they right were go- after this yeah yeah they were going nowhere fast i mean they became basically the next people to fill the shoes of ace and his buddies and that's you know that goes where that goes right there's only so far that road's gonna go and then you know for the rest of us even if you get out even if you're doing everything right of one random moment like that in, in an encounter in a store or a restaurant, bam, you're just gone. 
And and to me, that just completes the circle. So maybe Gordy gets to live out his life as an old man, but that you just see the full scope of human circumstance across these four boys. So the little story, Stud City, that's in the body, um, in that story, the narrator's brother was killed by a car that comes off the, the track. Um, and so, again, it, there's the sense that, like, not always the, the best people don't always make it. Yeah. Um, and that there is a bunch of random goocher sort of mm-hmm. circumstance. Big goocher energy. Big goocher energy. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, though, I mean, those guys back, I mean, the 70s and 80s were no slouches in terms of violent crimes. So, yes. you know, that's just life in America, if we're being completely honest here, across the decades. So another one that I love to talk about, if we're talking about the stories within the stories, we have to talk about the pie contest. Yes. <laughs> the pie eating contest. Yes. Young um, Master Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. He... and. Another aside in this, by the way, it, this is the most infamous scene in the film, I think, aside from the leeches. Um, and <laughs> yes, and I mentioned in my episode with Terry Lynn Coop and about Night Shift, we were in a little aside and she's like, the one scene that can really just get me immediately sick to my stomach is that scene. <laughs> and you, she even thinks about it and she just feels something in the back of her throat. You know what's crazy? It almost didn't get in the movie. So they were actually thinking of a different story and Reiner was like, it just didn't seem like a kind of story Gordy would tell that might be a little more sophisticated. So they almost went in a different direction, but then ultimately decided to keep it there. So we almost didn't even get it. It made sense because I think they ultimately decided, oh, well, we're not thinking about the storyteller he becomes. He's still a 12-year-old kid. So we're going to yeah, know exactly. it as it would be seen in the mind of like 12-year-olds. And, and I think it's believable because it's still... At its core, it's still a very interesting tale that seems very plausible for a 12-year-old, where it's like, I'm going to pull a fast one on this town for revenge against all of the awful people. Again, even in this story, there's no reliable adults. (laughs) (laughs) They're all a bunch of jerks. (laughs) You know what's really funny? In that scene, you can see a very alive Ray Brower at the pie-eating contest. He is apparently behind the twins. He's standing there laughing. You can go back and see him. Uh, in in it. But that story, to talk about an inside joke that has been mentioned before on this show and Chris's. So Gordy finishes the story, but it doesn't really end it, right? And Teddy hates, he's like, how does it end? And he's like, I don't know. It just kind of like, he just maybe gets, goes home and and has has a couple cheeseburgers. (laughs) And uh, he's like, well, you know, the story's great, but the ending sucked, which again, calls back to Stephen King's reputation for bad, you know, yeah, the criticism people have for bad endings that, that again, it just always seems to find its way in, into some of these stories um, that especially, uh, represent King on a personal level. Like, oh, we just got to put this in that you didn't know how to quite end your great story. It's funny, the the kids' responses to the story too, because Teddy's like, well, why don't you have him go home and shoot his dad and then go join the Rangers or something? Right, That's right. what Teddy's <laughs> fantasy is. He's like, that would be good, something good like that. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I mean, how do you end a story like that? I I, I remember trying to think about that at the yeah. time. That I, I think read you it. fade out on his achievement, right? Like, it's kind of the way the story ends to me is how it ends. Like yeah. he's sitting there, a, to, a complete and total barfarama. I think you, it was that's great. That's the story. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's always that feeling that some readers, and I think that's another commentary in like 
readers having helpful suggestions, heavy air quotes there. It just saved way more about them than, than yeah. anything about the story. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, you, you, you complete that story. What do you think he does? And so that's kind of the power <laughs> yeah. of the beauty of it, that Teddy can create, turn, you know, Hogan into Rambo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's pretty typical of short stories, right? Short stories don't always give you the conclusion like you might get from a novel and there's just supposed to like you, you briefly check in you briefly check out absolutely so we're covering some of the misadventures that these kids have along the way right um and we're, we're doing it a little out of order so don't <laughs> don't jump on me i haven't gotten any hate mail yet oh i'm cooking something up you just wait there's an <laughs> There's going to be like an alternate email account. Somebody will be like, I can't believe you did the leech thing before the bar story. <laughs> um, actually? <laughs> Teddy playing chicken with the train happens kind of early, if I remember correctly. That's like their first encounter once they get on the rails. That's really when we see, start, we see Teddy. Because every place along the way, each of these kids kind of have their own kind of moment slash breakdown slash we're pulling back the curtain and you're going to see kind of like my ugly and painful insides. And mm -hmm. so that was the moment with Teddy because he wants to play chicken with the train and he's crazy enough that he would probably get killed. Right. He, he can't see. That's the other thing. Teddy has like these Coke bottle glasses. Oh, that's right. He can't see. He has a hearing aid. Um, he wants to join the army. He has this delusion that he's going to be able to do it, but he'll never get in with his yeah. physical issues, right? And his mental ones, for that matter. But he's hanging on to that dream, and he wants to dodge the train. And, of course, Chris and everybody else is like, hell no, don't do it. Like, come on, dude. And Chris finally intervenes at the very last second drags them off and they roll down the hill and then they kind of have a fight that's i can't remember it might have been not in that moment it might have been after the um junkyard with the dog oh it was with the junkyard and the dog because after they have their fight they go on they go to the junkyard they got to cross the junkyard to get to the other side where they need to go and of course there's chop chopper the the the, the legendary choppy sick balls giant dog right <laughs> yeah. owned by the junkyard owner it reminds me of the dog in sandlot i don't know if you guys have seen that yes. movie where it's like yeah. it's legend to be this massive dog like the size of like a hippopotamus or something he is and then of course he's just this little medium-sized kind of like my my late great dog fez it's probably yeah. like that which i mean he sort of looks, looks like a, a muddy version of like a labrador retriever like he's sort yeah. of yeah. that yeah. sort of ish he's, size. He's basic medium-sized mixed dog yeah yeah dog. there's you know he's a barky dog and sometimes that's all you need is a barky dog but they cross and then they're climbing the fence on the other side they almost make it they're like oh, running 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 and of course was it um this teddy's pants that got grabbed by oh no no they get they get up over the it was gordy's that's right he's Gordy. trying to come back from the grocery store that's right that's right but they get to the other side of course of the fence and they start teasing the dog you know they're especially teddy's like you know bite my ass yeah. Uh, yeah. chop you know and they're just kind of having fun because they realize chop is just this poor little mongrel dog he ain't no threat but then the junkyard owner comes out and he's a big POS and he knows each of the kids and he looks at all of them and just nails something about every one mm -hmm. of them. And then of course he singles out Teddy and he talks about, yeah, we heard your dad went section eight and all this. And he's like, you don't talk. And he, that's when Teddy loses it. You don't talk about yeah. my dad. He stormed the beach at Normandy. And then of course the guy laughs and he's like, yeah, he's crazy as a shithouse rat. And that's when Teddy has his breakdown and 
you know, that's when we really see the curtain pulled back. And especially Chris says, Teddy's saying he's ranking my old man. Um, and Chris is like, who cares? You know, what he says doesn't matter about your old man. Your old man still stormed the beach in Normandy and all that stuff is still true. And even though Chris has got to think his father is a mess, um, he still knows, he still understands his friend enough to know that he needs to, you know, validate that. It's like his peacemaker side. Like he's not making peace between people, but helping Teddy find his own peace, right? Like, don't listen to this guy. You know, he's trying to smooth it over. And I, I don't know if it's in the book. I can't remember now, but I know the voiceover from Richard Drivis, uh, older Gordy is like, you know, Teddy cares so much for this father who's been abusive to him. And he's like, my dad never laid a hand on me and yeah. I couldn't give two shits about him basically. And it's just that interesting complexities, I guess you could say of these parent relationships, all these kids have. I think there is like a, a silent resentment dynamic that happens in a lot of families where they never laid a hand on me, but there's almost something worse in a way about not being cared for at all. Like that ambivalence. Yeah. You said the difference between abuse and neglect. And yes. it's like, they're both awful in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. That intensity of feeling that very raw red emotion versus a very neutral washed out desaturated nothingness in the movie even where you see gordy interacting with his parents it's i think almost intentionally washed out the mm -hmm. the colors are faded from the rest of the colors in the movie i don't know if it's because it's it, it always sort of felt to me because it's not when he's with the other boys and so it's a little paler it's a little less vibrant but i think it also probably has to do with the sort of washed out way he feels correct me if i'm wrong wasn't there a moment in the book or the movie where he tries to say he says something to his mom she asked him how his day was and he thought about saying something like horrible and then yeah. she just didn't notice even that or something. or maybe he actually did say like oh yeah we went and did some drinking and we did this and this and this and it's in the book he talks about thinking about it yeah, um, and how she would just go, uh-huh, that's nice, yeah. honey. <laughs> uh-huh, that's, that's great, sweetie. Like, Are you going to take Jane to the dance, Denny? Yeah, like, and that's when Denny's still alive. And so they were ignoring him even before Denny died. At that dinner scene, Denny's like, hey, Dad, Gordy wrote a story. It's really good. And they just, the dad, it's like, Kate, I think you said this. It's like the dad cannot even relate to anything yeah. that Gordy is about. So it's almost like that does not compute. In one ear, out the other. Okay, back to what I was saying. Like, he just heard some static or noise. It went away. Okay, now I can get back to asking the real questions. It's it's very haunting. And it's interesting, you know, the abusive relationship Teddy has, you at least see some, like, connection there, even as challenging as it seems. But you're right, when there's negligence or just, like, you're invisible to me, there's no point at which you can even remotely connect. It's just awful. When you're being hit, it's like... Well, at least they're noticing me, huh? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that's that's dark, but a lot of emotion, a lot of connection there. Yeah. <laughs> but when Gordy's with Chris, he talks about how like he says, My dad doesn't even love me. He doesn't, I must be a bad person. Mm -hmm. Um, and Chris is basically like, No, you're not. And and if they can't see it, then maybe I need to. Oh, yeah. Again, that's sort of like fathering yeah fathering caretaker role yeah there's that point where he's like 
gee, th- oh, he's like, you're just a kid, Gordy. He's like, gee, yeah. thanks, dad. He's like, I wish the hell I was your dad. You know, like he's basically, yeah. Oh, it's such a good scene. Was that was after the leeches, wasn't it? Or yeah. I can't re- yeah, yeah. Because they were oh. like kind of, they were kind of wet and they were like undressed and they were drying mm-hmm. things out. And there was, I think that was that moment in the movie. And they're walking around and he's like, I'm not going to be a writer. It's stupid. Writing is stupid. Like he's basically at that point. And that's where Chris is like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, shut up. That's not true. Right. Because again, you kind of need someone again. And and you need that, especially, I think, if you are pursuing something like writing or the arts and, you know, as opposed to getting a, a real job, um, quote unquote, especially, I think, when you're working in this kind of working class town, it's the 1950s. It's very like uh binary right you go and you do this thing and you get your job and you shut up and you do your nine to five and that's your american dream kid but if you want to be a writer well you automatically know that's going to be a lifetime of feast and famine and struggle so and that dynamic exists to this day i mean god like chris and chris and Corey and i talked about that endlessly on our old podcast creative commoners uh, that battle between following the creative life and having a real job um, and how those intersections can be very messy and difficult to navigate. Um, You see that very much at play in this story and every creative person wants to be the creative person to follow those pursuits and be the writer and actually do it as a career. I think you need a, you need a Chris Chambers in your life or somebody to just say, shut up, do the thing, because this is something that clearly you want to do and that you're meant to do. And this is who you are and don't let your, the voice of the doubters get in your head. More than neglectors. The neglectors. Absolutely. It's amazing how you just get to the heart of everyone in this story. Do you guys feel like Vern got less play? I was actually about to ask you guys if you remember a Vern moment with the vulnerability because I'm I can't remember. It's not a vulnerability, it's more of like him taking control. Cause you know, Teddy just keeps beating up on him, two for flinching, mm-hmm. and he keeps hitting him and insulting him. And finally there's that point where, you know, they're talking about do they go back after Gordy has the mm. leech incident, like should we go back? And then Vern says something like, oh, maybe we should. It's like, oh, no surprise. The king of the pussies himself. He's like, stop calling me that. And he kind of has this moment where he, he basically pushes Teddy to the ground and starts beating up on him. He's like, mm-hmm. two for flinching. And so he kind of gets his comeuppance. But I don't think he ever has a moment where he's vulnerable. It's almost like he's been vulnerable the whole movie. And he kind of like. Toughens up. Yeah, he kind of gets his moment. To, it's almost he has almost a reverse trajectory. But I also think like we learn a little less about him. I mean, the main things we know are he has this JD brother who hangs out with Ace Merrill and Eyeball Chambers, and he buried some pennies. And oh, by the way, we all know that his brother dug up the pennies years ago, but he's still digging for them. Don't forget, Kate. Um, I brought a comb. and he brought the combs for for no reason i mean to be fair the guy who played Vern, uh jerry um, jerry o'donnell o'connell o'connell yeah goes and marries rebecca romaine so i mean you know he he wins in the end yeah (laughs) well you know what's so funny he was the youngest they said that he was only 11 when they started shooting yeah and reiner was like he came in and did the audition and left and came back in he's like aren't you that guy on channel five like (laughs) Because you remembered him from, as Meathead from All in the Family. That's funny. It's just this great story. But yeah, uh, 
it, it was really nice to hear from the three main actors in the, if you have the DVD version with the commentary and the behind the scenes, like the featurette, they're really great insights. Um, it, it, it's definitely worth listening to it. What's interesting though, if we consider Vern against the other three, I also feel that it's fair and valid to consider that there are just people like this out there yep. that are not very complex. They're not carrying around a lot, a, a, a deep core of uh, woundedness. For every Gordy, you get a Vern, right? Yeah. Right. And and so I feel he does represent a real uh, per type of person who, yeah, he just kind of goes through life. I desperately do wish, though, that the ending for Vern in the movie had been the one in the book, because I feel like in a fairer world that would have been Vern's life he would have married some gal and had a gaggle of kids and become a used car salesman and yeah. you know I, I feel like that could have been his life if if he hadn't been maybe drafted for Vietnam that probably would have been his outcome so now you know we've we've highlighted sort of the the more or less high and low moments of their adventure. Oh yeah. And even briefly, like this wasn't in the movie, by the way, uh, Gordy, when he gets the food at the grocery store, he did go into the grocery store to get it, but it was a very quick and, and easy kind of transaction. There was no lingering there, but in the book, um, the, the clerk behind the counter tries to rip him off and yeah. he's also a jerk. Unreliable <laughs> so, adult. Yeah. Another bad grown up. Does he basically put his thumb on the scale to try yep. to yeah. charge him more? Yeah. A literal thumb on the scale. While he's talking about his brother. Yeah. 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 And Gordy calls him out on it, which good for you, kid, which just shows that Gordy, despite being neglected, I mean, he doesn't put up with any bullshit. You know, he, he called the dude out. And of course, the dude ended up taking it poorly. <laughs> So, but he got his burgers and he got his, his buns and he got out of there. Oh, I forgot to mention, of course, we talked briefly about how the scene on the train trestle was shot in the film, but Vern, it, they're crossing this, the river, the Royal River, and it is a massive, it's about a mile across. So anybody who's been near at a very large river, which yeah. I mean, I live in Ohio, so yes, we are river country here can envision this and then you imagine this giant train trestle that what did they say it was about 100 feet or 50 yeah feet above i think so yeah um by the way that trestle is no longer there it's in the film oh, really <laughs> there's no longer a train crossing at that part of the river i read that so um anybody trying to look for this thing you're not going to find it uh and i imagine and since this movie was shot in oregon it was probably like the columbia river that that was over and there's no railing there's no nothing yep. and you can see the water between the slats yeah <sighs> God. Okay, um, Chris. Well, all of us are true crimeies here. Delphi, the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge. Ever seen 100%. that bridge? Yep. I that's, have. Oh Jesus! No it's a way. Scary bridge. And that's like a baby version, and still, like compared to this bridge, but still, it's even just the thought of it is very terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And these kids, they have to cross it. They they talked about how do we go? We could try to ford the river. I think one of them suggested that, and they were like, oh, "God, no! I mean, there's we'll die." They don't want to like spend the hours that it would take to go around. They want to to find a better bridge. Like this yeah, is they're the like way it'll take across. ten minutes to cross it. Let's go. And I find myself constantly referring to the moment 
where Gordy bends down to touch the rail and he feels it thrumming. To me, I always compare that sensation of feeling the rail vibrating in your hand to how I feel when I have a high anxiety moment or I've had too much caffeine. Like mm-hmm. the inside of my body feels like that rail vibrating. <laughs> and and I, so that moment is always stuck with me, him bending down and touching that rail and feeling it. And of course, as he builds the scene, as most brilliant writers do, the first couple times he touches it, it's fine. And then the other kids get across. And I love the moment when it was a Chris, when he steps off and Gordy for a moment just feels hatred. Yeah. <laughs> he's like yeah. mad. He's like, how dare you? Cause he's stuck behind Vern. Who's, who's crawling. Yeah. Falling. <laughs> and let's pour one out for the comb. At least in the movie, the comb falls out of his pocket. <laughs> falls out and falls down. <laughs> his one contribution, man. Yeah. The, is gone. <laughs> And so the emotion of that scene, and then of course he bends down to touch the rail and he feels the shake. Yeah. And then he looks behind him and you can see the smoke coming from the train smokestack. And you were like, Oh God. And and that's the best part, not seeing the train, but just Uh the smoke. I feel like seeing the train would have been cheaper. The fact that, you know, it's coming, you hear it, you hear the and you just see that billowy. Because you're instantly like, how much time do they have? The train's probably going about 30 miles an hour, I'm yeah. guessing. And then the kid, you can, at best, anybody at best is probably running about seven to eight miles per hour. Oh, so yeah. you're not outrunning that thing. Nope. And, you know, and then you're behind Vern, who, <laughs> bless his heart, finally just, he sees his life be flash before his eyes and they're booking it. But you have to think like the space in between at any moment, you could twist an ankle, you can get stuck, you can Leg just- can go through. Yep. Yeah. Trip and fall. It's so terrifying and so brilliantly written. And you really do get a sense that this is coming down to the wire. And and it, at that point, I mean, it, you really don't know. What if one of them did get killed? And then you also think they're going to find the body of a kid who was hit by a train. It did get hit. Yeah. So the encounters that they have with trains on this adventure, going to find somebody who was hit and killed by a train. Mm-hmm you know kind of interesting um little tie in there at the end when they finally just in my mind they escaped it by like a half second you know um and then teddy's yelling oh very cool very cool the ultimate train dodge you know like he's (laughs) he's all amped up about it teddy was digging it and didn't they kind of have to they kind of jumped before they even got to the end they had to they had to jump off yeah Vern and uh um Gordy do Teddy and Chris are so far ahead. Like you said yeah. that, but the funny thing is as much as he ended, he's under the train dodge, notice he wasn't standing on the tracks also trying to dodge it. You know, it's one of those things where the macho kind of uh, thought that he had at the beginning versus the reality that you might yeah. get killed by this train. It, it's very interesting. It, it's very understated. Well, that just shows a moment of growth for Teddy, right? Like he had some breakthroughs, I think, in the course of that. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Had having had both of those encounters where he's just been kind of faced with reality. Maybe it is a slightly different Teddy on that trestle. So I guess Will Wheaton could actually run way faster than uh, Jerry O'Connell. Um, but of course he had to like fake that. You know, this, oh, right? No, Chris? You're, you're thinking about the scene where they race in the junkyard. Oh, okay. And it's against okay. River Phoenix. And yeah. basically, Will That's Wheaton right. could run faster than River Phoenix. So he's like, 
how do I fake it? And Rob Reiner's like, just pump your arms and just, you know, make it look like you're really exerting a lot of effort. It's sort of like the, um, the Tom Cruise run, right. With the arms, <laughs> pumping the arms real fast. I remember what it was. It was another trivia bit that I read about the scene with the train was Rob Reiner was trying to get these kids to really look truly terrified. He and he screamed was screaming at them. at them, trying to get them to look scared. Yeah. They weren't doing it right because again, the train's, Way it's like hundreds of yards away from them, mm-hmm. and basically, Reiner is basically like, "You're wasting our time. The crew is tired. If you're not going to get it right, I'll come after you." Like he's screaming at him. He's like, they started crying. He's like, "Roll camera, roll camera." <laughs> <laughs> and then he felt a little bit of regret, but like right after it, they were like beaming, like, "We got it, Rob. We got yeah. it." They like give him a hug and everything. Time so. and then time again throughout the making of the movie, they talked about how Rob Reiner use so much of his experience as an actor to help these kids find the place that they needed to be and without directly telling them he just really organically helped them find the moment with river phoenix and i think in the moment when he has his own little breakdown about the milk money i think Uh um he told river remember a time in your life when an adult let you down just focus on that and that did it. Like that got him yeah, there. Yeah, you could feel it. And he had to go be comforted after that as well. And honestly, as were Phoenix in his upbringing, I mean, like I said, the, the Phoenix clan, they were brought up in a cult. They were in the Children yeah. of God cult. And there was a lot of shit that happened in that cult. I highly recommend people go and talk about it, probably talk about it on this show at some point. But I think he had a deep well to dig from in that and explains a lot of his intensity as an actor a lot of his brother's intensity as an actor as well so again helping them find that moment he even did such a great job with Kiefer sutherland who played ace merrill because this was Kiefer's big acting role at the time his first job right? his first big job i think yeah yeah before he was a socal vampire exactly before he got into lost boys yeah i still love that movie such a good movie (laughs) And he talked about how, like, when early in the film, when he encounters Gordy and he steals his baseball cap. Oh, yeah. It's a great story. And yeah. Rob Reiner. And his brother gave him. His first, his first inclination was to put the hat on. And Rob was like, no, Ace would never mess up his hair. Um, you and also, he's like, to, it would mean nothing to you. He hands it to Eyeball. They go off. And then they think to themselves, what did you do with the hat? Well, you threw it away. He, he would have thrown it away so again it was like rob truly understood these characters and these kids and also as an actor himself understood how to get them to tap into that I mean, he prepped these kids so well he gave them the music he gave them the slang they had like two weeks of basically training like boot camp if you will i mean yeah. that sounds a little more rigorous but basically they were playing like games improv and just doing different activities to build a rapport with each other and he's like a lot of other directors with kids would basically be off camera feeding lines and they just keep doing it until the kids got it right and he's like and they'd make the movie an editing process and that's why like if you watch this movie he has these long scenes walk and talk scenes there are no breaks there's no cutaways there's no nothing that's how well he worked with those kids. They were able to do these long scenes, multiple lines of dialogue, and just nail it. Yeah. They're so good. 
And it really speaks to the way that he approached this. And, and to your point, being an actor, they mm-hmm. call those folks actors, directors. And they're yeah. like, those are, those are the people that a lot of actors want to work for because they get it rather yeah. than like, I'm here George for the technical Lucas. aspect. <laughs> I want the shoot for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Which not, that's not exactly slam against George Lucas. That's just not the kind of director he is. And I think it shows. It does. It absolutely does. I mean, if you uh, look at, for instance, if you have to watch a movie that stars Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, and Natalie Portman, three of the finest actors that we have working today, and they are wooden and uninteresting. That tells you they are not if you're working. making Samuel L. Jackson uninteresting. Oh, what my is God. wrong with you, right. sir? <laughs> that is not an actor's director. <laughs> right. so, um, for sure. so yeah, it, it's um it's an interesting dynamic that he really put to play with them and man you would never know that those weren't kids of the 1950s yeah. they yep. nailed it and i love to i apparently uh kiefer <laughs> in order to kind of stay in character apparently he would like kind of pick on the kids like yeah. on the set and everything but he really bonded with them as well and he bonded really well with river phoenix and kiefer's talked about this in interviews as well about Um, how the movie was always called the body from, you know, the get go when they were making it. And then there were talks about changing it anyway. It was never, they never felt it was quite the right title for the movie. And so, um, he was teaching river Phoenix, how to play stand by me on the guitar in between scenes. And that ended up being what they ended up going with. So that's interesting because Reiner said that that was the intended song all along. Hmm. So that's interesting, yeah. but maybe they were playing it because they knew that was going to be the song. I that don't know. could very well be. I mean, it, it feels like that was like the vibe. And Reiner said that's also, to his knowledge, one of the few songs that was a hit twice, like the same recording, not a read, you know, not a right. cover, not a, anything like that. The exact same recording originally a hit. And then after this movie came out, it was another big hit. I was like, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland's per- portrayal is so great. I mean, it is. He's so what he is, and he's he's scary. Like that scene where they're playing chicken. That blonde white hair, yeah. that very piercing stare. And another actor would overdo it, right? They'd over they'd chew on the scenery. And he does, he's one of those I'm doing a lot with a little. And his voice. I would say both of the Sutherlands, Donald, Do- Daddy Donald, yeah. And Kiefer, <laughs> these are Love the guys. Th- oh, I love them so much. Um, They both act with their voices. Like the sound and the timbre of their voices play so much into the characters that they play. Nobody sounds like either of them. And they both have very different voices from one another. Even as father and son, they don't sound really that much alike. But the sound of their voice, you know when you're hearing Keeper Sutherland talk. And there's something about that tone of voice that he has that adds to that menace factor. He doesn't sound like a nice guy. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Like Kiefer is apparently by all accounts that I've read and seen of him, people love him. I mean, he's, right. yeah. people right. love working with him. And also you would never know that he is a very small man. He is like five five that he is a very he's kind of got the tom cruise factor he is a small man holy smokes most hollywood actors if you're not like adam driver adam driver is like a beast (laughs) of a man john lithgow 
Yeah, like you can tell like a tall actor. Most Hollywood actors are pretty short in terms of stature. They're, you know, usually under 5'10". Uh, most the, of them the box to make them taller whatever right right and so he but he has a presence on the screen that makes him feel much taller than he well, is it's so clear that he controls that whole gang like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the the scene where they're playing chicken in the cars like he's crazy he's absolutely crazy at the end he does a head nod and he's in control right he just yeah. nods his head and the gang starts to walk away from the altercation it's like yeah you're absolutely right well that's why that ending scene where the gang shows up and the boys are there and mm. they've found the body and they're getting ready to figure out what they're going to do is like you've just watched him play chicken and almost like he's not going to lose and then that's basically it's another game of chicken with you know are you going to take off and leave us the body because now we want it and see this is the very interesting thing right so after all these misadventures the boys finally find ray brower and 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 the way that they come upon him is very interesting because they're very tired they're they went through a thunderstorm that was like the last thing and they have been through a lot at this point i think they all want to go home but they're just walking along, walking along, yeah. and all of a sudden they see, what is it, the foot sticking out of They the see the brush. back Harlow Road, and then they go down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. They find him, and... The finding is pretty quick. That feels very real. It is one yeah. of those things where you build it up, you build something up so much in your head that when it finally happens, it almost feels anticlimactic. I, I feel like King nails that sometimes really well in a lot of stories, like... You're just going along, going along, and this is building up, building up, and then bam, here it is. I don't think finding the body is is the whole point. Right. The only discussion they have while they're walking along is, hey, maybe it shouldn't be such a good time to go. Maybe it isn't like a fun thing to go find him. And they get a little more solemn as a result. Like, maybe we need to think about what we're actually trying to do here. And But that's interesting that they finally have that realization because at the very beginning, it's like fame and money and then as they're going along and they're having these increasingly intense adult experiences that that make it more serious then yeah maybe we shouldn't be living it up here and then they find him and i think that's when it all comes down uh to them really having to confront death and mortality They've already confronted it in a lot of ways on the way there. But when they finally stand next to an actual corpse, and honestly, for me, um, my first time encountering a corpse was at a funeral. It was an open casket, but it was very much a similar kind of moment. And I was about 16, 17. And looking down into that and seeing that was like my first confrontation. And it really is interesting how it changes everything. It's like, oh, this person who was once alive that I knew very well, that was very happy and full of life is now just laying in a box. Oh my God. And to them, they're seeing this boy about their age lying in the grass with his shoes off because the train knocked him out of them. Yeah. Knocked him out of his his head. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and there's his blueberry bucket. He was just picking blueberries. He just went out to pick blueberries, got hit by a train. And, you know, they all confront that to the point that after they see him, they're like, we're just going to go home. We're just going to call it in anonymously. They're not interested. And I think that just shows the fact that the four of them have a quorum about this. Yeah. Is really shows 
who they are. You might expect like Teddy or Vern to mm-hmm. be like, no, let's let's go through with our plan to call, right. get in, get on the radio, get in the newspaper. But they all seem to sort of quietly understand that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And then, of course, Ace and his buddies show up. And in the book, and I can't remember, I think in the movie there were some cutaways, too. I can't remember mm-hmm. to the to the gang. I can't. The, the, you follow the gang pretty much the whole time without. The whole baseball cap stuff, mm-hmm. not in the book. Like, that's right. really a way to introduce the gang. You kind of hear about them at the beginning, and then there's nothing, and they show up at the end. Yeah. Like, the whole baseball, the mailbox baseball, that's all. Yeah. All of that is, you know, they're doing the tattoos and the they're tattoos, talking. They're at the pool hall. Yeah. All yeah. That stuff. That's all added, which makes sense for a movie. Right. And the story kind of makes sense. It's like, I'm telling my story with my friends and then these guys show up. Yeah. Because so you don't experience. know. Yeah. This is all totally from Gordy's. That's right. That's a very good point. It but for a sense. movie, you kind of have to have that parallel story going along. So it, it makes sense in both cases. And yeah, so yeah, they show up and they have their little showdown. And this is another instance of where, you know, Ace obviously got through to the gang and they decided they're going to go and and find the body and they're going to try to take credit. And of course, they, you know, the boys don't want to let them do that. And, you know, shit is about to get real. Ace is about to cut these kids. And that's when Chris in the book pulls out his gun and fires it up in the air, which to me makes sense in the context of Chris being the, the peacekeeper mm-hmm. uh, of it. And of course, it's his dad's gun. And the in the movie, it's Gordy who fires the gun to kind of make everybody quit, which makes sense in the movie to a certain extent, because, you know, he's he is the lead actor. He's the lead character. I feel like I could see why they made that slight adjustment, I guess. Reiner said that to him when he adapted it, this was a story about Gordy and his arc. And so he imbues Gordy with a little more of, frankly, his own experience. Because he's like, I connected with this character because I had periods of my life where I didn't think my dad loved me or I had no real connection with him. Of course, his dad, very successful director as well, Carl Reiner, right? Carl, R.I.P. He only died a couple years ago. But he's like, you know, I I identified with that at that time in my life. So to him, it's like he he wanted this trajectory. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I like that. I like that a lot. And, And it just goes to show when you are writing a screenplay, when you're adapting something, then you have your own creative license as well, that you make these decisions for your own reasons. You are the writer and it is a separate medium and it is not always your obligation to adhere to everything in your source material. Yeah. So, um, so I think both decisions absolutely valid. Me too. um, And I stand by them. And of course this was enough to get Ace to back down, um, which it was amazing moment for the moment. But (laughs) Ace says, you guys are going to pay for this. We're going to hurt you very badly. And of course, in the book, they do. In yeah. the yeah. book, all the boys get beaten all to hell um, in separate incidents um, over time. Gordy, we hear about, he he takes it pretty damn hard. He gets beaten all to hell. Gordy's is kind of like the first beatdown. It comes relatively quickly. So each one of them... Definitely. Like Ace, he sticks to his word. And of course, the body of Ray Brower is called in anonymously. Like mm-hmm. nobody gets credit for it. It's just called in. Yeah. So 
at the end of it, like Ray gets found, but whatever this silent battle that's going on between these two gangs is fought in, you know, in secret off camera, you know, nobody knows about it, which I think is fascinating too. If you're reading a story about this in the paper, you don't have, you don't have any idea that uh, four young boys and four older boys are battling it out over who gets to call it in and get credit for it. That never gets told. Or the four for the main characters, it's almost like a moral decision that it not be a getting in the newspaper kind of thing, that it, that it be respectful. Um, I think it's supposed to show some sort of growth on all of their parts, different kinds of growth. Um, And then of course, immediately, you know, they turn around and hike all night, they say, and get back to town pretty quickly. And we don't, there's nothing, there's nothing about, whatever happened during walking back the 20 or 30 miles that they have to walk. Um, because for them, it's, it's closed. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me and that the whole goal is to just get back and now they got to go to school and, and this is, this has changed them, but they're done having this experience. Doesn't it feel like it a little bit too? Like they have this yeah. experience, but in it, they physically forget. Like yes. there, there is a physical forgetting that happens. It's part of the mechanism of um, the supernatural element, right? Um, but it happens in this instance too, but there's no supernatural element at play. Well, and I think also like even on a regular experience, I'm sure we've all been on a trip, like a road trip, let's say, and you're really excited when you start and you're chatty and la la la. And, but and everything trip, is meaningful every yes, step. Like, oh, look at that. You know, it's all fun. Yeah. And then that last tail end of it, you just want to get home. That is literally something I just went through. Yeah. <laughs> and not a lot of conversation. Yeah. You know, it's not like it's bad. It's just, you're more silent. You're kind of more reflective. And so there's even like a normal mapping onto it, but yeah, to uh, Kate, to your point, it's like there's also there's really not anything else to to say. Like it's the decision's been made, and now it's just getting home at this point. Mm-hmm. There's no and, more adventure to be had. And they realize too, they don't have the provisions that they need. You know, and of course, they have to really get home before their parents really start to notice. And I think, um, well, Gordy gets nobody noticed. Gordy's gone, unfortunately. None of them. I think. Uh, maybe it was Vern's mom would have been the one who would have been kind of the busybody element of all this if she wanted to connect or compare notes with any of the other parents. But, you know, as far as we know, there weren't any real repercussions that way. So they were able to just kind of get home and uh, get back to life. But I mean, imagine too, I mean, I, you know, haven't had kids that age at one point. And if one of them was carrying around something like that inside them, that they went and they found a body and they saw a dead body in the woods and then they almost got beat up over it. And then they did get beat up. I mean, my God, (laughs) it's, it's one of those things where sometimes, you know, we talk about adults that carry secrets around and carry things around in them. Um, You know, teenagers, kids, teenagers, they absolutely have their own uh, universe and that they live in um, that doesn't include us grownups. Well, that's what makes King's writing about um, kids so powerful, I think, is because he allows them to have that stuff. He does not infantilize them. Um, he makes them real people with real and meaningful things to carry around. Um, and if you think back to that age, it certainly felt like we did have those heavy things to carry around. And some people actually did at that age have those things. 
And these are all kids that do clearly as you get to know them. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is, have you guys um, read uh, King's book on writing? Yes. So you have, yeah. So one of the things he talked about in there that I've always found really interesting is he talks about his own memory. Mm -hmm. And he says, some people have these great memories where they can literally remember, you know, step-by-step minute to minute or hour to hour, what happened. And they can relay that. And he says, his memory is more like, you know, driving in the fog and trees are coming out of the fog and Mm. that are like memories. And so for me, that's how my memory is too. My partner's memory is, you know, like, yeah, at 11.03, we went here and we did it. And I'm like, what? I don't even remember what we watched last night. Um, so Chris, when you were talking about how this is so autobiographical, it's interesting to me that he has these, their emotional memories more than they are like maybe actual event memories. I, I don't know. I guess maybe he went through some of these things, but the emotion of them has definitely made a memory imprint. I just find it so interesting given that he said that his memory is spottier than that. Yeah. And he's able to so accurately recall this. I feel like King does a brilliant demonstration of, so everybody who writes something or wants to write something, I should say, they often have this thing of like, I lived a crazy life and had some crazy experiences. I'm going to write a book about it. Or I want you to write a book about my crazy life and my crazy experiences. And the thing is, is that when you actually do sit down to try to write a story, especially a fictional story, or even a memoir for that matter, but really in the realm of fiction. And you find like when you try to do a fiction story, that's a a beat by beat account of a real thing, it's flat. It, It doesn't work for some reason, even though you're telling the truth, like the chronological event filled truth of it, it's not working. It needs something else. And I think what King did here is he took these emotional experiences and these moments that he could recall, but he fills it in with this artistry. I wrote a story um, called Daddy's Glasses, and it's on my website. And I wrote it largely based on events that happened in my mother's childhood that she told me about when um, I was a kid that I've known about my whole life. Like she lost her baby brother and her father committed suicide. And there is a lot of darkness in that. And so much of that story is true, is very biographical on the account of my my mother. But it has a deeply supernatural element. And there are some other things added to it that I had to add, because if I just told it as she remembered it, it would not, well, it wouldn't be fiction for one thing, but it also just wouldn't be what makes fiction special. I think the only way you get away with it is you're like a David Sedaris, where it's not this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know, it's more of this like pastiche, this, there's a theme and a flow to it. And And a lot of license. Like, I don't think he tells, you know, the virtual truth. Absolutely. Right. I think, yeah, exactly. It's like, there's a little bit of, it's creative nonfiction is what I would like. I kind of think of it as where it's like, you're taking that license because reality is not, I mean, for this man to have done all the things he's done for all these books, but it is, you take the kernel and then you kind of build around it. And I think you're right, Allison. It, it can very much feel like, so we did this and then this happened, but hold on because you wouldn't believe it. Then this happened. And right. it just, it feels more like you're journaling than you're uh, writing a story. 
And I think yeah. that someone like a Sedaris can craft that into a, a tale that's compelling yeah. where it doesn't feel like that. And it, it's interesting. It has a storytelling flavor to it that is just... I don't know what I'm trying to say anymore. It's magical. But. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're absolutely right. There, are like, I mean, I keep thinking of it as like the bubbles in the soda, right? Uh, like you have your base mix, your your syrup, your, and that's your reality. But if you want to make it into soda pop, you got to add the carbonation. Some and emotional carbonation. Yeah, emotional <laughs> carbonation. That yeah. is the new term. I, we You've coined it. It stands. It we is. We also coined big Gucci energy. Let's just big let's Gucci give us. <laughs> we need a lot of credit for all the things we came up with. I feel very much like we covered the gamut of this story, and to tie it back in many ways to um, that initial quote, especially the part that Kate added about do you know we ever have friends like we had when we were twelve? Yeah. And no, we do not. But at the same time, I think there is a reason that at least privately, in many ways, I act like I'm still 12 with most of my friends. <laughs> yeah. Chris can attest. Uh, and, Likewise. and I think that is because there is a certain magic to having that kind of energy and that kind of um, the inside jokes and the, the things that you carry with you and the things yeah. that keep it vibrant and interesting. And so even if you're not 12, you know, and I was not far from 12 when I met Chris. I was 13, in fact. Yeah. So um, I feel like maintaining that, staying 12 and 12 in your friendships is probably the way to stay young I, in your heart, yeah. <laughs> your very secret heart. Yeah. <laughs> so um, does anybody have anything else to add before we wrap this sucker up? One thing, and that is that, I think for me, always the story made such a huge impact because my parents got divorced when I was like 11 and a half. So I left a pretty small town and moved yeah. to a much bigger town, I left that group of friends and found another one. But it, the timing of it feels so, because that was such a huge uproar in my life that yeah. it always felt very close to me um, because that time was so important and those friends were so important and it was kind of changed fundamentally. So that's the only thing I would add. I feel that with Chris too. I'm going to pull you into that too. Cause Chris, I know you moved around a good bit when you were a kid and you had some, you know, changes in your life as well. Yeah. So I imagine that that maybe plays into the way you relate to it in some ways too. You know, that's interesting. I, I don't know that it did. Um, I did move around a lot. And so there was the, the change almost became the normal, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, not that it wasn't hard when I did it, but I think just to me, it was thinking, I, I think it really did tap into all of those childhood memories I had and the experiences mm -hmm. and the freedom we had to explore and make adventures and run around. And there's just something very romantic about railroads and railways, there's just something magical about them. And I, I can't quite put my finger on why, but I was always drawn to them, even as a kid, like trains and railway and just a train going by a crossing. And it just, it's almost like you could jump on board and go yeah. someplace magical because trains literally get to like train conductors get to see a part of the world. Most of us don't get to see. Right. So in a way they're, they are going on a magical journey, but that aspect, I think, more than maybe some of the the hardships is really what drew me in. But I can certainly relate to those 
pieces. And quite frankly, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour or so. To answer your earlier question, yes, there's more that I could say, but I think we've ended on a, a pretty good note. So, and don't forget, you wanted to get it on with Will Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, nothing against Will. It was very time specific. That door is closed, Will. I know you're itching for it. Sorry, buddy. He's no longer that train. <laughs> Neither of us are at station. that. Exactly. Neither of us are at that point anymore. But it was a you know, thirteen-year-old thing. It, yeah. Now we're just faces in the hall. Well, that's exactly. all. We <laughs> but yes, we do next week. We are going to prison, you guys. And, oh my gosh! Um, and I so am so excited to oh. go to, to Shawshank. And I couldn't mm. imagine two people that I would rather be there with. So yeah, um, I can't wait. So you're you. One of you is the red, and the other of you is the Andy, and the other one is Brooks. So Brooks, we'll just, I was gonna say uh, that. <laughs> somebody bring the pet bird. Wait, aren't okay. you the aren't you the main? Uh, you're the main guard. No, I can't remember his name. Yeah, oh my god, yes. No. Oh my god, yeah, but yeah. Um, somebody's got to be him, yeah. Byron Hadley. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with yeah, me on that this was journey. Wonderful. We're oh, going to continue the journey, and hopefully, there will be many more. Because Kate. We love you. Love having you here. You're that just was, such that a, was amazing, guys. You're a great voice. You're a great contributor. And there's so many other ways we can bring you into this ding dong darkness time uh, studio. So, um, in the meantime, uh, wait, is Kate the queen ding dong to my king ding dong? She's she might just be the queen, the queen, queen dong. dong royalty, royalty. <laughs> I love it. I am in the presence of royalty. Um, Yes. So please, if you guys love this episode, please go over to Apple and give us a review um, or reach out to me on Twitter at DD Darkness Time. Also at Gmail, DD Darkness Time at gmail.com. If you have any questions or suggestions or hate mail, as was alluded to earlier. And and go and listen to the full back catalog. We got so much Stephen King. We also have a whole season one on various aspects of the dark side of the arts. And then season three is approaching. Also, I'm working on putting together a whole sub part of the show called Ding Dong Ditch, which will be short episodes, solo, shallow dives instead of deep dives into topics that maybe don't warrant a full episode but are interesting and fun and i'm putting all that together right now it's all going to be part of the main feed and i'll have a little more information on that in the near future with all that in mind guys go forth read some stephen king and we'll catch you later (laughs) ding dong darkness time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly allison dixon It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs. Oh, man. It's... What... Okay. We talk about the nostalgia for a time you didn't live in. What about having nostalgia 
listening to a podcast you were in where you talk about the nostalgia that you lived as well as the nostalgia for a time you didn't live for. Is this inception level nostalgia nesting? What is going on here? The meta is out of control. I loved listening to us talk about all the things that I loved experiencing, that I loved watching. Oh my goodness. It was just amazing. Ben, what's your earliest me- Well, first off, have you read the short story? I had not. I had only seen the movie. Okay. So tell us earliest memory of the movie. When did you see it? Take us back. So this is great. And I don't think I've ever like explained this on the podcast. And I'm excited to like bring this up. Oh, okay. Like growing up, my father loved to very selectively expose me to movies. And he he would like, we would go to the movies all the time. Like we loved going out to the movie theater for whatever was like exciting that I was all pumped about at the time. But uh, he would always be like, there's this old movie I want you to watch. And like, you know, Friday night or Saturday, whatever, we're going to watch it. And we would like sit in the basement, put it on. And it was always like a movie that he thought was really important from like cinematic history. Yeah. Most of them starred Paul Newman or Jack oh. Nicholson. <laughs> okay. He, lo- he, lo- he loves those two actors, Paul Newman or Jack Nicholson. All right. Um, so there was a lot of those. But I remember uh, Stand By Me was one. And I was like around the age of 12. I was like 11 oh, or 12. Okay. So it was much It was much past the 80s. I, I saw this much after the 80s. But it was like the perfect timing. And I, yeah. I just remember it being like a movie watching night. I will just never forget because it was so perfectly timed. Mm. And I was, I was ready for it to absorb it at that age. Uh, and it just – it always stuck with me from that time on. Oh, that's amazing. I mentioned this in the episode, but I definitely, I don't remember if it was my first time watching it around the same age as those kids, but I definitely remember seeing it around that time when I was in middle school and just really identifying with them. Again, even though it was from several decades removed from my own personal experience, right? it just really kind of landed with me in a, a just, yeah, an unforgettable way. Anything that you really love about this movie have questions about things that stuck out to you. Look, Chris, I was so excited when you picked Stand By Me. I remember loving this movie so much. And on rewatch, I mean, I was shocked, Chris. I mean, I was floored at my reaction, <laughs> which was I love this movie so freaking much. I, Ben's like, I hated it. Worse than Maximum Overdrive. Than, this was minimum under underdrive. Um, <laughs> like, when the camera starts, yeah. when it just starts with Dreyfus sitting in the car, and then that music comes in, dude, mm. you know? Like this, just it felt like this warm, weighted blanket of 80s Mm. and a time before the 80s, which I have no memory of where I wasn't alive, just wrapped around me and gave me a hug. Like this movie is such a beautiful experience. And like it just, it felt so good right out of the gate. Like with that coming back into it and like re meeting his cast of friends, Will Wheaton's care, like friends in the movie, Mm. and each one. Each one, Chris, but here's, so, okay, let me just, can I just start getting into it? Can we just chemistry away? Of course, yeah, we're firmly in chemistry now. Like, when you guys were talking, like, each of you sort of related to a different character, mm, like, different yeah. one of Wheaton's friends. And and when I was watching, like, I feel like I saw a little bit of all of them in me. Yeah. We're all a little bit of it. We can try and be the responsible, serious one. We right. can be the friend that you tries to unite the group. We can, we can lash out. We can get crazy. You don't know what we're going to do. 
Listen, everybody, you can take the quiz, which golden girl are you? And sure, maybe you're a Dorothy, but you're like, but I've got a little bit of Blanche in there. There's a little bit of the Rose. You know, you got a little something of everybody. Exactly. And I, I just think that's kind of fun. I think that's really special. Um, I, I always, Although I like know this movie very well and I yeah. like watching this movie so much, there's so many times I'm referencing it where I'll go like, oh, yeah, have you ever seen Lean on Me? <laughs> no, that's that's an 89 drama about inner city schools. <laughs> but also a song. With Morgan Freeman. Lean right, on me when you're not strong. Right? They're so it's both, also a song. They're both great songs. They're both prepositional <laughs> offers on how proximal you should be to your friend. Like, they're both from the 80s. Uh, I always I always get those mixed up when I'm referencing them. Oh, that's amazing. I never made that connection. I love it so much. No, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but the, like, the music in this is so good. You know what's interesting, though? You mentioned, like, how this movie is dripping with nostalgia. And I feel like it is it is dripping with nostalgia for the time. Which remind me, like, when does this take place? When does the movie take place? Oh, geez. Uh, 59. Okay, 59. Okay. But it's not like where a nostalgic movie today tries to shoehorn in a bunch of stuff. Mm. Even like Air, which I th- for a, not a sport baller like me, Air on Amazon Prime of like the story of getting Michael Jordan, great yeah. freaking movie from recent. Yeah. But it like shoves in so many 80s references so you know this is 1984. Right. And like Stand By Me is not like that. It's just beautifully, comfortably 1959. And it's yeah. not like, here's a headline from 1959 and another and this song that was top of the chart. Like, it's just, we did it. Here's 1959. It's great. Yeah, it all felt natural. I mean, there's certainly different references, but you're right. It all felt like their inclusion was there in service of the story, not to be like, hey, see, see, another reference you forgot about. Look what we did there. You know, <laughs> right. it's nothing like that. Right, right. Yeah. I think, I think what this movie does better than any other movie I can think of off the top of my head. And what's weird is where I'm going makes me think of Seth Rogen, which I was not expecting to say here. But like this movie is perfect at capturing the private conversations between you and your friends at that Mm. time in your life. And like the found freedom, whatever that was, that you carved out within the guidelines your household set forward. Right. We chiseled out freedom of going into the woods or riding bikes somewhere. Like that was our escape. And then the conversations you felt you were having that your parents would be upset you were having, but everyone who was an early teen, preteen, 12 was having. And now you kind of realize like, oh, maybe my parents at that same age were probably having similar conversations. But it was like, right. just I can't think of another movie that is so well captured dialogue with that group dynamic than Stand By Me. Yeah, I saw something that was saying that Quentin Tarantino's dialogue of like people sitting together and just having these like interesting discussions and like the the richness of the discussion like not that he took inspiration from stand by me but people have drawn those parallels before obviously his subject matter is way different but he's really good with dialogue and people having what feels like a interesting natural conversation and so i saw that reference but you're right in terms of like I'm sure there's references out there and hey you can email us at 80s high podcast at gmail.com and and let us know what we missed But yeah, I think there's definitely other examples out there. But when you're in the hands of somebody who can write really good dialogue and make it feel like, oh, that's like me and my friends group. It's just it's really magical. And it it doesn't happen as much as you might expect it to. 
And it's, it's, you know, okay, so here's the weird connection. It's why I'm actually really excited for Seth Rogen's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, that's right, coming, yeah. That I guess by the time our podcast is aired, the movie is out in theaters. Mm. But, like, I've watched a little mini documentary, and he was like, I've always loved Ninja Turtles growing up. Who doesn't love Ninja Turtles? But the thing that was always missing was the teenage. Yeah. They nailed Turtles, they nailed Ninja, but, like, these guys don't talk like teenagers to each other or, like, act like teenagers. So this is this great mini doc at the time of the recording right now of, like, the four kids... They're kids. They're they're little teenagers yeah. who play the turtles in this movie, and how much the movie is improv and then just screwing around, and the writers being like, uh, "Check with our lingo." Those teenagers just said because they're laughing really hard, and I don't know if we can put that on film if we know what the true thing is. Oh, like, that's great. Someone, but like, it just feels so authentic of what teenagers yeah. are going to be. And I think that's really hard to capture, but really important in telling these stories. Well, it's also because when we grew up, people in high school were played by like twenty six year olds. Exactly. So, like, <laughs> so ridiculous. So ridiculous. If I ever build a tree fort in my life, it's going to be because of this movie. This movie <laughs> always made me want to build a tree fort, like to have a tree fort amazing. with your friends. I think it's, I mean, this and Return of the Jedi are like the only reasons I want a tree fort. Obviously. Ewoks, come on. What else? John Cusack is such a good older brother. Oh. Like my heart just melts when he's interacting oh with Gordy gosh. all the time. Like, hey, Gordy wrote a story. It was really good. Didn't oh. you read it? Then? Like, he's such a good older brother. He's yeah. so great. Oh my gosh. Oh, the, the Lardo pie-eating story. That I remembered a lot from being a kid, like, watching that. that. For some reason, that haunted me. Like, I took away from that as a kid, like, being really disturbed by all the vomit. <laughs> like, well, it just, like, creeped me out afterwards. I don't know if you would call it body horror, necessarily, but it's, it's definitely... It's around there. Sitting and watching 50, 60 people do it for, oh like, my God. a minute and a half straight. Well, oh it's no wonder you God. probably, like, got a stomach-churning sensation. Yes! <laughs> oh, man. The only other thought from, like, scenes is I've I've spent a lot of time as a summer camper, a summer yeah. camp counselor. Yeah. I love being out the doors, as you know, and as you do, too. I've been in a lot of fresh water, and I have never encountered so many giant leeches oh my goodness in a pond slash puddle before in my life i wonder if it just happens to be like where in the u.s you are in terms yeah, of like exactly. the leech density but yeah i don't Holy. know that i've ever encountered a single leech and, you know we would be in like rivers and stuff but oh my I goodness i love that scene that scene is hilarious and awesome and it's like the pacing of the scene is perfect of like finding it and the fun and then the moment of when Will Wheaton looks down like like the pacing is comedic perfection there but uh yeah. I'm just like wow that's a lot of giant leeches yeah and I think I you know I mentioned this on the episode but definitely the the part that really hit me is just the nostalgia for trains and train tracks and I always yeah was so fascinated yeah. by trains and wondering where the tracks went as they stretched off into the horizon and so being able to like have an adventure on a train track would have been like so amazing to me as a kid. We played right. around them, but we never like really ventured that far. You know, we certainly didn't take a journey out of town into like some remote area like they did, but that part of it just really kind of took hold of me. Yeah, totally. I won't go through them all, but there are three lines that like I always love. Oh, please do. Yeah. yeah. When they're first playing cards in the tree for it, <laughs> Corey Feldman goes, A pile of S has a thousand eyes. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. so bizarre and random of a line. <laughs> But it's so perfect of just like the total nonsense you would make up. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a yo mama back in 1959. Like it means nothing. Nonsensical, but like everyone just starts laughing at it because it's absurd. <laughs> that was Absolutely. such a good line. Yeah. The line that like still made me, I'm even, even getting ready to say it right now. I just got goosebumps is the exchange when they've, when they're over the body 
the the bad boys are there. The gun comes out. Ace and Gordy, what are you going to do? Shoot us all? No, Ace. Just you. Mm. Holy cow. What? <laughs> like the Titanic massive weight uh, betwixt Gordy's thighs. Like I love what a line. Yeah, that's no, great. Ace, just, just you. This is so good. And it's like so the, the steel coldness with which he delivers it. It's right. just like, it's right. unwavering. It's just like matter of fact. And you're like, this kid might actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> actually do it. It's so oh. freaking good. Um, and I'm ahead. I'm like, be careful, man. Ace is also a vampire. You don't know what yes. he's going to do. He is a SoCal vampire. A you SoCal need to watch vampire. yourself. Watch yourself, kid. And Corey should know that. Corey Feldman's character should know that. <laughs> oh, that's right. Teddy should, should know. know. Whoa, interesting. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, a little crossover. And I just want to address like the most famous line from the movie. I never had any friends later, like the ones I had when I was 12. Yeah. It's a beautiful line. It's so well written. It captures so much. It's great writing. I also support it. But I also just want to revisit. Like I want to caution us with loving that line too much of like when I kept thinking about it in my head after watching the movie, I was like, I could also say that of like, I never had any friends later on life, but the ones I had in college, I never had any friends in life. Like the ones I met after college, like I have many little pods of friends that are like mean the world to me. And then hopefully present company included be friends for life and like mean the world and have a lot of great memories. It's a very wonderfully written line, but I think interpreted the wrong way or remembered the wrong way. It's that like thing of like things were always better when you were a kid. And it's like, no, like there's also other great friends. But yeah, the the gems of being 12 are very unique, especially in that whimsical summer rose colored glasses kind of idea. I guess you could look at it as a way of like, these are the best friends you ever have or whatever. And I think the line is really, you just don't have friends like that anymore. And it's, it's the whole idea of like, you know, it's that coming of age time of life. And I think even Allison said it where it's like, you're kind of finding out who you are and you're a version of yourself that you're not as repressed. Like there's things that you say as a kid, you would never say as an adult because no. you're like, that's not appropriate. Shut your right. mouth. Right. But kids kind of have no filter and you can say things to each other that as adult friends, I would never say to a, someone else because I'm like, this is going to be so mean or just whatever. <laughs> right, it's just not right. the right way to say you it. You can't say that. So yeah, I mean, your point is very well taken. It's kind of one of those things of like, again, it's nostalgia because you'll never get that back. But you're right. right you'll never get right. college friends back because as adults, you don't live that life anymore. You you, you don't have that. Your liver can't handle it. That proximity. <laughs> your liver for sure. <laughs> but also that proximity to like people your same age and you're all just carefree and you don't. You don't have attachments and all that stuff. So, right, right. Yeah, for sure. Those are all my reactions of rewatching this truly treasure of a movie. Was there anything like from your episode that you recorded with Kate and Allison that you were like, ah, I wish I had said this thing? Or like, hmm, now that I've cooked it for a little bit, I feel a little different about this thing. Like anything you want to bring up? Well, I think if we cartwheel over into contemporary culture across the hallway, oh, yeah. oh, cartwheel. there's not really much that comes after this movie. In as much as there's no sequels, of course, there's no known progress on any kind of like uh remake or whatever nothing going on but i did see like you know this movie obviously has a huge legacy in terms of impact on people and who really identify with it but i just found some interesting like references or homages that i want to talk about so this gets a little bit of contemporary culture treatment movies such as boys in the hood now and then 
The Kings of Summer, and Love and Monsters all kind of do an homage mm, or okay. a reference to Stand By Me. It's also been parodied or referenced in The Simpsons, Family Guy, and Rick and Morty, <laughs> which is uh, fantastic. Good digging, and, yeah. you know, th- those, those cartoons and shows often come up a lot when we're talking about you know references and so forth. Um, and the last one I found, which is great, because we've talked about this show a lot, Stranger Things. So apparently the actors, when they were auditioning for their roles on the show, were asked to read lines from Stand By Me. Really? Which, again, obviously another property that's really looking at nostalgia of the 80s. What better source material than to kind of read from that script because it's such a great script. And, you know, again, we've talked about how great the child actors were in it. And also the fourth episode of Stranger Things is called The Body, which is a reference to the novella, which I thought was really fantastic. So Stranger Things working on so many levels as usual, but even behind the scenes, what doesn't make it onto the screen. Reiner really took a great novella and I think somehow made it, I won't say more magical, but made it magical on screen, which as we all know is not the same thing as the magic you find in a book. It's a different language. It's a different skill set, as evidenced by the fact that King himself has made adaptations to television, which have been atrocious and awful, but he's great on the page. He's just not really good at that adaptation. And so Reiner just knocked this out of the park. and, And you can really tell with the care and attention that they put into the relationships between the actors and really eliciting these, basically allowing the kids to find real life trauma or hardships that they could then put into their performance. And there's a lot from River Phoenix, of course, and his very, very tragic childhood. But I would just say if you have a version of this on Blu-ray or DVD and you have the director's commentary, do yourself a favor and listen to it. It is amazing. It's Rob. I don't think there's any actors on there, but he has such great insights. It's almost like Kevin Smith. Like he's talking almost nonstop and there's just (laughs) great insights. Some director's commentaries, you know, you're like, oh, that's okay. It's fine. There's a little bit here or there. Rob is just like all over this thing in the best way possible. Oh, that's I would love to listen to that. That'd be great. Yeah, go get your hands on it if you can. Ben, I have a copy of it, so you're you're welcome <gasps> to borrow it next time I see you, which I believe is tomorrow. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, do we want to do a little math assessment? Uh, I think we kind of sure. know where it's landed, but, yeah. you know, I don't know. Maybe you've saved your surprise much like you did <laughs> right, last for episode. for the grand reveal. For this, like, How crazy really... reveal. So what do we think? Stand by me in 2023. I think from the 80s, this is my number one coming-of-age movie. I mean, if I really sat down and thought about it, I'm sure I could nitpick and find some stuff, but I think it is a virtually flawless movie. Mm. Like, I don't feel like there's any fat in there. It is a trim and tight story, and it is that perfect mix of, like, drama, adventure, and comedy. It's like a little bit more of a grown-up Goonies. Like, not as <laughs> not as silly of a quest, much more relatable, but it's still, like, yeah. a quest of young teens together, like... And it just captures so much. The music is so good. Sets are flawlessly done. You think you're in 59. There's never like a, oh, there's a guy walking down the sidewalk with a Walkman in the background. Like, There's the- not a Starbucks coffee as you're fighting dragons. <laughs> exactly. <There's> nothing- <laughs> exactly. The dramaturge is perfect and on point. The sets are perfect. The kids like act the bejesus out of their roles. Like what incredible performances. Mm. I didn't want to like go over the top and say my favorite coming of age movie of all time because there's a lot out there. Um, that all are lovable for different reasons. But I think easily that came out of the 80s. And there's a lot that came out of the 80s. 
it's my favorite from the 80s. What about you? How do you leave this movie? Yeah, so, I mean, you probably got a lot of impressions from the Ding Dong Darkness Time episode, but I'll just say this movie remains to me as well one of the strongest pieces of childhood nostalgia uh, in all of pop culture entertainment. There's magic in the writing, the performances, the way it's shot. The visuals are just amazing. The care, as I mentioned, with which Reiner and his crew worked with the actors, the performances they were able to get out of them. I really identified with this when I was around the age of those main characters, so it spoke to my own experience in so many ways. I really just have such fond memories of childhood, being able to venture off on our own to kind of create our own stories, getting into fights, making amends, running into dangerous scenarios, and and coming through it all somehow changed, even if just slightly. I think all of that is really what comes through in this movie in a way that so few, maybe no others really have. And so, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. And it's just, uh, it's brilliant. And I love everything about it. Yeah. I love it. Good. Well, this is fun. This is a fun revisit. And I like our little experiment for keeping our class engaged, almost like our summer reading with our uh, visit from the summer summer substitute teacher, Allison Dixon. So thank you all for joining us for this bonus episode. And uh, we'll be back in September. You know, stick around, stay tuned. We'll be back for season four, where I revealed we'll be talking about The Watchmen, the graphic novel that led to the movie that led to the miniseries that led to all the things. And so please join us when we're back for season four. But until then, I just want to thank everyone who has supported us by listening, subscribing, reading and reviewing, by donating on coffee.com and As you mentioned, Ben, special thanks to Allison Dixon and Kate uh, at Ding Dong Darkness Time for letting us stream this episode here. Please go check out her podcast if you like hearing about the darkly delicious things. As Ben said, it is a, um, what did you call it? A mature, almost like coffee shop discussion look at all things dark and sinister. Yeah, it felt very grown up. It was good. It was very mature. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your summer, everybody. And we look forward to seeing you senior year season four on 80s High. Pew, pew, pew. Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical!